Support for Boston Public Radio comes from the University of Massachusetts Amherst. Be revolutionary. UMass is the Commonwealth's flagship public research university and committed to the relentless pursuit of progress. Learn more at umass.edu. Ahead on Boston Public Radio, Bernie Sanders is dominating, winning the popular vote in the first three states. Now he has his sights set on South Carolina, but while voters are feeling the burn, what about the Democratic establishment? As the moderate wing scrambles to find their champion, some insiders are now starting to reckon with what a Sanders atop the ticket could mean for their party and its other candidates. In a couple of minutes, we'll ask Jennifer Nassour and Charlie Chippio if there's still a path to victory for Biden, Buttigieg, Bloomberg, and Warren, or if all roads lead back to Bernie. Getting your license at 16 is a rite of passage in the first step toward a lifetime of road trips, Sunday drives, and commutes. But in old age, driving can become dangerous, leaving some wondering when older folks should put the car in park for good. We'll open the lines and ask you, when is it too old to drive? That's next on Boston Public Radio here in 89.7 WGBH, Boston Public Radio. Jim Browdy, I am Marjorie Egan. You're listening to Boston Public Radio, 89.7 WGBH. Hello, Jim. Marjorie said a horrible thing I off did. the air. I'm sorry. And I'm going to pull it, it overhead it. for years. <laughs> She's taking the sign of the cross. She should. <laughs> several times. So on Saturday night from San Antonio, Texas, Bernie Sanders took his victory lap after a landslide win in Nevada. And now I'm delighted to bring you uh, some pretty good news. I think all of you know we won the popular vote in Iowa. We won the New Hampshire primary. And according to three networks in the AP, we have now won the Nevada caucus. So with Sanders now cemented as the frontrunner, will the Democrats let him win the nomination? Or is Pete Buttigieg articulating the sentiment of a wide part of the Democratic Party? Congratulate Senator Sanders on a strong showing today, knowing that we celebrate many of the same ideals. But before we rush to nominate Senator Sanders in our one shot to take on this president, let us take a sober look at what is at stake for our party, for our values, and for those with the most to lose. There is so much on the line. Here with us in Studio 3 to take on all things election 2020 and other political headlines are Charlie Chippio and Jennifer Nassour. Charlie's a principal of Chippio Strategy, senior fellow at the Pioneer Institute, adjunct professor at Suffolk University. Jennifer Nassour is a former chair of the Mass Republican Party and founder of Conservative Women for a Better Future. Jennifer, Charlie, good to see you both. Good to be here. So um, the con- what seems to be happening is the establishment Democrats are shaking in their boots now thinking that Bernie Sanders can't possibly beat Donald Trump. But Bernie did make some inroads uh, with uh, not just the, the, the Bernie bros and the young people, but with African-Americans and even moderate voters. So where are we now, Charlie Gippio? Well, we are um, in really one of the lowest levels of hell right now, I would say. <laughs> um, <laughs> with this choice, uh, it's, it's, this is, this, you know, the Democrats' capacity for self-immolation is, is beyond anything I've ever seen, and it goes back as long as I've been alive, and it just 
seems to grow with time. Why are they uh, self-immolating? What's the uh, what? because uh, because Bernie Sanders would lose forty states to uh, to to Donald Trump. So that's the voice of a moderate. Now we'll have the former chair of the Republican Party. <laughs> on Bernie. Did you say a couple of weeks ago, Amy Klobuchar, did you say here that Klobuchar was the Democrat? To be, was it you who said that? I thought it was you. Maybe not. What's well, your take I mean, on the I, Sanders phenomenon? I think phenomenon? that she, she would be a good selection for moderates. I think her and I think Bloomberg are kind of satisfied that that area where a lot of us – feel like we have no home in the Republican Party. I mean, party, the stop the and Trump frisk party. vote, essentially, is what you're saying. Is that what... Okay. You know what? <laughs> what we should do is we should definitely put a Democratic Socialist up there who has never actually joined the Democratic Party, who has been the United States senator of a state that has about roughly 630,000 people and is the whitest state in the country. That's exactly what we should do, because he should really turn the country around for the better. Can I amend your first question before you respond to this? Because I know you may feel differently. It's the concern amongst the Democratic establishment is not simply can he beat Trump, because actually some think he can. It's the down-ballot stuff. Is the down-ballot stuff. Is the fear that that in the lower races, Marjorie, uh, I'm not taking a position on this, but their contention is if you're in a close state, a potential Trump state, uh, you're going to have a real hard time holding your seat yeah. Or winning a seat if you're a Democrat. Yeah, and I, you know that's a very important point. I have to tell you because for whatever bizarre reason, I spent my 20s driving around every back road in the South. I went to law school in Nashville. Uh, you know, it's so easy to forget what outliers we are and what yeah. this country is really about. And let me tell you, he that's just mm-hmm. not going to play. <laughs> Absolutely. But, you know, I was having this discussion with Jim earlier, though. Okay, this excitement around Sanders is enormous, particularly young people's excitement around Sanders. Last time around, 2016, the Democratic establishment got the person it wanted that half America couldn't stand, the second least popular person. Now the Democratic establishment seems to want Joe Biden, who seems to look like he's <laughs> losing his fastball. We'll see after Saturday whether person. that's the case or not. I don't know. Yeah, and, 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 uh, or Michael Bloomberg, who uh, does Oof. have lots of money, but he's got wow. tremendous problems, and he was absolutely horrible in the debate, and I don't find insp- inspiring anybody. So I guess... Why do we think the the Democratic establishment has any idea what it's talking about? But here's the thing. So in 2016, Trump excited the base. He excited people who weren't excited before. And then we got Trump. So so is that where politics has become? Have we gotten to a place in American democracy where we're going to let primary politics dictate the one – the single most important person who has our futures and our children's and grandchildren's future in their hands? I don't think so. And so what's going to happen is this will bubble down. I mean, you see time and time and time again where Democratic um, elected officials and former elected officials say this is going to be devastating for the party. What will happen is the Republicans will take back the House, will retain the Senate, and will have the White House. So why doesn't Barack Obama – this is a serious comment – why doesn't Barack Obama summon – uh, Mr. We, Americans want improvement, not revolution. That's what he said in November. Biden, Buttigieg, Klobuchar, and Bloomberg to where I don't even know if he's living in Washington or Chicago, Washington, I guess, and say, uh, boys and girls, uh, uh, the only way that uh, Bernie Sanders can be beaten if he subscribes to what you two are saying is if you consolidate your support behind one of you people. I know none of you want to pull out, but you're all guaranteeing the ascendancy of Bernie Sanders. 
Uh, uh, and so let's not leave here until we have a candidate. I mean, he is the only party elder well, in 2020, is but, he not? But the problem is that they all have their own selfish reasons why they're not going to do that. So, but that's and, always the case. I mean, right, you have but, countered that, I'm sure, when you're running the totally, state party, sure, right? But, but they would. But they're gonna they're gonna sit and they're gonna listen and they're gonna nod and they're gonna be polite and then they're gonna do exactly what they want. You know, let I me mean, just say one of the. As you know, I don't have any original ideas. I get them all from CNN when I watch your panels, <laughs> yeah, and then I pretend they are mine. <laughs> and the other night when they were saying what the two of you are pretty much saying, this is McGovern Part Two. This is not 40 states, but 49 or whatever. Van Jones, I thought, may used to work for He's Obama. Very smart. Made a really interesting point, and uh, he said. And I'm nodding with the McGovern stuff. And then all of a sudden he says, there's one major difference. Bernie Sanders is beating Trump in uh, head-to-head polls. He is beating Trump in a lot of key states, as you said to me this morning, Marjorie. Uh, McGovern was not doing any of those things. And so I'm not suggesting that this is not a risk-laden candidacy. But this is a dynamic unlike we've ever seen with the president who, uh, you know, despite the polls this morning, I'm sure you saw in the CBS polls, 65% of Americans think he's be reelected, including a third of uh, Democrats. Uh, Sanders is pretty popular with the voters, uh, Jennifer. Obviously, no? he's popular with the voters. Why don't we just mean in those three states? <laughs> I, right. I mean, first of all, we're talking about three states that I, we haven't even gotten to Super Tuesday yet. Number one, where, like, the rational voters are. Sorry, you know. Iowa, New Hampshire, and Nevada. But, I mean, you know, we haven't gotten to Super Tuesday yet. So that's number one. Number two, there is no way that America is going to elect a socialist who is going to pull down health care for 180 million Americans. 180 million Americans will completely shatter the economic system. So if you have a roof over your head today and you are making money and, and, and paying for your family, your system is going to blow up. There is no way that people, when they get to the polls in November, are going to vote for Bernie Sanders. Can I say one more thing? about? about by the way, for those uh, uh, Sanders supporters who are ready to have a stroke out there, a little bit later in the hour, we're going to take calls from about, on this very question. We'll be safely gone. So you'll, have, you'll have an opportunity. <laughs> Can I pick up, though, on some Something that Jennifer said, and I'm really glad you said it. You know, we all, a lot of us, said there's it's an outrage that Iowa and and New Hampshire have the power they do. Let me add to that: it is an outrage that Iowa, Nevada, and North uh, New Hampshire have the power they do. Yes, Nevada is much more diverse. What is it? Twenty percent uh, Latino, I think. Eighteen percent Black, and maybe well, maybe a few numbers, but essentially yep. thirty-five to forty percent people of color, as opposed to those two states. I did the math this morning. I may be off a little because I can't read my writing. Six hundred thousand people have voted so far, and essentially the media line is, understandably based on these results, Bernie Sanders is the nominee. Of the Democratic Party. 600,000 people have voted in three states. The whole system, whether you love Sanders at home or at work listening or hate Sanders, is sick. It is so skewed and and so unfair. There's two parts of that. One is the sort of demographic being being demographically not representative. The second thing is just how non undemocratic these caucuses are, grotesque, which is our insane. It's terrible. Ju- ju- you know. I mean, and by the way, two of the three first contests, as all of you know, right. Iowa and Nevada, right. were these. Uh, and by the way, you know I love CNN, but I have to just say this to get it on my system. CNN during the day, I'm watching the caucuses. Talk about pathetic. I'm watching the caucuses, and they have the results from a caucus at a place I never heard of, right outside Las Vegas, Sparks. 
uh, Nevada, right outside Las Vegas, and they're running the percentages. And they say, well, so-and-so has a good crowd, and the camera pans. There are eight people. <laughs> people no, I don't mean, I'm not being, I'm not exactly, it's not 48, Crazy. it's eight people mm-hmm. standing in a room. Mm-hmm. Now, some may say it's because they had, the first time they ever did uh, early voting and 75,000 yep. voters, but the whole system is is so screwed up Completely. and it, it is just, it is painful. I'm sorry. But, I'm no, sorry. but I, I do want to go back to the, to the point you were making about the difference between this in 1972, and I, w- I would say... Chris Van Jones deserves credit yeah, to that point. right. Uh, but, well, but I would say two things about that. Uh, you know, the first is that uh, in 1972, or the, the big thing really is that in 1972, there were not a whole array of ads that were going to make themselves... <laughs> You know uh, uh, about George McGovern the way there is. I agree with that. About That's Sanders. an important point. And that is entirely different. So you can those polls are meaningless right now. Let right. me tell you. I mean, because once all you mean attack stuff, ads coming from Trump. Oh yeah, and I mean, he hasn't been the, the subject of any attacks yet. That's right. And the only thing that the only thing that Bloomberg said the other night that made any sense was when he said. You know, Donald Trump is watching this and loving it right now. And, you know, that's true. Yeah. That's or, true. or wait, how about when Bloomberg called Bernie out for being a hypocrite and having three yes. homes? I mean, how many socialists own? Th- uh, OK, what's good for the goose isn't good for the gander. One's a summer camp. Come on. Yeah. Dude, whatever that means. <laughs> right. I whatever have no idea means. what that means. You know what? Meant. Most most people who are on living in subsidized housing also own summer camps. Yeah. Sure We're talking to Jennifer Nassour and, uh, and uh, Charlie. So let, me, so let me be clear. You think that Bernie's got no chance? Is that what you're all saying? <laughs> <laughs> I think Bernie's got no chance, but I have to say that, A, I was telling your listeners throughout 2015 that, that Trump, that Trump no couldn't chance. get nominated, that he couldn't get elected in 2016. Uh, and as recently as three or four months ago, I was telling you that Bernie was done. So why you even have me on I anymore? Guess, but I guess the other question is get back. So who's left? I mean, that's that's the question that is left. It's Biden. Well, Look, it's there's Bloomberg, always uh, look. It's I think Klobuchar. I don't think. I mean, are they? I think inspiring the best, but I don't think she's gonna. I don't. Okay. I don't think she's gonna win anything. It, it, so well, it's gonna be Biden or Bloomberg. Yes. Yeah, I think it's it's down to Biden and Bloomberg. And and here's the thing. Well, wait, you know, wait, 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 wait. What about? Let's keep in mind. Buttigieg, Buttigieg has was tied for first them. in Nevada, yeah. In, yeah. in not Nevada, in Iowa. He came in within a hair yeah. in New Hampshire no, against the neighboring senator. And he came in a pretty close, I think third is, I don't know if they're final, even finished counting in Nevada. Yeah, last I, mean, I saw it was third. Other than, Bloom, other than Sanders, he has had a remarkable so, finish. Can I just make a point here? So I ran for District 8 City Council. The district that. has 72. Th- it's a point, Jim. Okay. 72. <laughs> <laughs> There's no self-promoting here. It's all over. So it, the district has 72,000 people. Pete Buttigieg has been the mayor of a city of 100,000 people. That means that it's District 8 plus a little bit more of another district. That's what Pete Buttigieg has been. So, I mean, it's great that he's done so well so far, but again, he also has not been tested on a bigger stage with more people. I can make the same case about a candidate a couple of years ago who had been a state senator and barely been a United States senator before he was elected president of the United States from Illinois. I mean, yeah, no, I, look, I think your well, points are well taken. Americans thought we couldn't have uh, elected a black guy either. Mm-hmm. Right. I mean, I'm talking right. about but that but black I, guy. Right. Yeah. But I do think that Buttigieg is, in addition to the, the tiny city, he's 
37, he's gay, and he looks like he's about right. 12. He, right. Yeah. You know, and, and uh, so I, I, again. I mean, I like him. I just don't think when he gets out there on the bigger stage to more Maybe. people that he's going to resonate as well as Klobuchar, as well as Biden, and as well as Bloomberg. And, you know, when you say the, the Biden thing also, well, we have no, I obviously have no idea. If Sanders wins South Carolina, I would say Biden's yeah, pack it, it up. But yeah. if Biden wins South Carolina, he's hanging on by a thread. His lead mm-hmm. is not nearly what it was before. It's very possible that he is going to be seen as the one guy who can stop Sanders well, if you're looking for him, unless people say, well, as pathetic as Sanders' performance, pardon me, Bloomberg's performance was, many more people see him on television and ads than saw him on the stage despite absolutely. the record uh, viewership last week. I think that may be true, Jim, but I, I'm very, I'm very shaped here by my experience when I worked for Paul Songus in 1992, which is that we won New Hampshire, and that was great, but the reality is that we had neither the time, nor the money, nor the infrastructure to point. really cash in on it. And I think Well, we learned that, that was Klobuchar the... out of New Hampshire, right, too, by exactly. the way. She had no infrastructure, no staff, And, and that, that, could be the, that could be Biden's problem at this point as well, especially given that Super Tuesday is three days after South Carolina. Can we <clears throat> talk a little bit about the the president of the United States? Can we talk um, about Bloomberg first before oh, can ahead, we stay on ahead. the Democratic <laughs> yeah, go side? Ahead, go ahead. I thought this NDA thing was almost laughable. I mean, after Elizabeth Warren called him out quite well, I, I thought, on the non-disclosure agreements, and he said, uh, you know, I've made bad jokes or whatever. She said, how many? He wouldn't answer the question. And then he releases, agrees to release three women from NDAs. You don't need to be a student of political science to say... What about the other women? And one must assume that they have more damaging stories to tell. So did he fix anything with this or, or did he not, Jennifer? Um, I mean, I always like when people own up to what something. they have done, right? Yeah. So, I mean, it's something. Is it everything? It's not everything. But we have a president who still hasn't released his tax return. So, I mean, you know, releasing three women from NDAs is a good start. Well, you buy that, Charlie? Um, well, my understanding was that he said that he would release the others, too, if they asked for it. So, I mean, look. Bernie Sanders said he was going to release all his medical records a well, few months I, ago, And why too. that's not yeah. a bigger issue is beyond me. Yeah. But it, it, that's a very good point. Yeah. I yeah. mean, he is, is he 77 or 78? 78. 78. 79 okay. by election and day. And he's yeah. had the heart attack. Yeah. And yeah. So I don't get why people aren't thing, making a bigger deal Bloomberg. of that. So, um, you know, so I, you know, I don't know. The, the, but, um I don't know. The, the, the whole Bloomberg thing, the thing that amazes me the most about it is how can anybody who's that smart and that accomplished not prepare for mm. his national debut? Yeah, I, uh, by the way, I had that conversation with myself, and I'll tell you what I conclude. <laughs> is, is somebody who worked for Barack Obama, and it may have been Axelrod, who I greatly admire as an honest person, good, even yeah. if you don't always agree yeah. with his worldview. I think it was Axelrod who said the most difficult job in America is not the presidency. I'm paraphrasing this, most difficult job is walking into the president's office and telling him he's wrong. Mm-hmm. Or, or And when you are one of the most powerful people in the world, this is the only analysis I can come up with because I thought the exact same, but every question he blew, he knew was coming. Right. And the only analysis I can think is he may be somebody who you can't critique to right. his face. I don't know him. I've never met him. I've read a lot about him. I've read things other than what I just described, but what possible explanation for his lack of preparedness for his entry onto the stage, which was, you know, obviously a huge national story. It's not, yeah, it can't I, be no, I absolutely agree. I mean, just like it's hard to tell a candidate 
hey, get out of the race, which I had, you know, had those conversations with, you know, God rest souls, you know, Jackie Robinson and Christy Myhos and on and on and, you know, and saying, hey, listen, like we want to have a really good chance mm -hmm. of, of winning here. Um, and it just as you can't do that, I think it's really hard to tell someone who is a self-made billionaire, hey, by the way, you're wrong here. Don't trust your instincts. Trust mine. I'm only 30, 40 years younger than you. And I wrote a speech, so I know what I'm talking about, right? Yeah. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. I'm on food stamps. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I've been making $25,000 a year. Stamps. That's right. Yeah. So now, and by apologies, now let's... No, uh, well, well, first of all, before we get to the purge, um, which, what preceded the purge apparently is the presence IR over... Uh, his uh, his intelligence person, the name of uh, Mr. McGuire, is on his way out the door, telling him that Russia was interfering in the election of two two twenty. But he's all, and apparently the him. Russians are also interfering and favoring uh, Sanders. So, uh, does anyone care to explain why the Russians are on the side of both Sanders and Trump? <laughs> well, they're on the side of. They want Sanders to be the nominee for the same reason we've been discussing here today. I, that's, yeah. Well, except I mean, there's a, a New York Times too, story right? that, that I I assumed that was the case, too, because they wanted Trump to win so badly. But a point in a New York Times story is, uh, while that may be true, they are the leading candidates, the incumbent and Sanders, who are uh, wildly against overcommitting yeah. overseas. Right. And obviously the dream of a Putin is a drawback, uh, uh, which you know I favor too, but for obviously different reasons, which clears the landscape mm -hmm. for Putin's sure. uh, desire. Well, so true. there may be you know more to it. They're sort of opposite sides of the same coin. In well, some they're both fashion. crazy. <laughs> <laughs> they both are you know pretty narcissistic. That you think that your sort of politics resonates with everyone around, and so they're both going to be focused on what their own agenda is, and neither of their agendas is caring about what's going on over there. It works out perfectly. Okay, so let's talk about this uh, this purge that apparently <laughs> apparent, the, the president has embarked on. It's being headed up by this Jimmy McEntee. He's just 29, 29 year old. years old and got fired for yeah. an online gambling <laughs> yeah. yeah, Yeah, and was escorted out of the White House previously by uh, General Kelly, uh, yeah. um, who's now said that, that Trump has a lot of problems. But, but this is, I think, a problem that the president now wants purged from government Everybody who doesn't agree with his uh, agenda, hook, See, line, and sinker. I think this is the one bright spot because here's why. Look, history tells us that it does not end well for people like Trump. Okay? Right. And now that he is unleashed after, after, the, uh, uh, after the acquittal, I think it's just a matter of when will he spin out of control? Will he spin out of control before November or Will he stave it off until after November? What does spin out of control mean? I think until he he does stuff that's crazier and crazier and crazier until people... Like, what could he do that is crazier and crazier? I don't oh, mean this facetiously. I, like, I, what? Look, I, I, think, I think that he has only scratched the surface. You know, when, when he makes uh, a, a high-level appointments that are clearly incompetent, when the result of that is that decisions that are completely inexplicable, uh, even beyond what we've seen now, start to happen on a regular basis. You know, look, the guy was right when he said he could walk out into Fifth Avenue and shoot somebody and not lose any votes. But I do think that there, as he gets crazier, there is a point at which the cumulative effect will take a toll. So I have this, no idea if that do, will happen you're before You're nodding in November. agreement, Jennifer. Does the, do the Senate, uh, for that to happen, 
not only do the American people need to respond, the Senate Republicans need to respond. Do you think there is a, a tipping point after no. which they say no more? No. So, so here is my – I agree with everything that Charlie said. I'm going to point out a few things. Number one, I absolutely believe that if you are in power, you should have people who are loyal to you around. However, I also believe that you are in power. You should have the best people who are loyal to you around you. <clears throat> By putting in a former ambassador as the head of something that is incredibly important to our country. Who has no experience has in intelligence. Who has no experience in intelligence it at sounds like all. kind of a nut. Right. I mean, and, and regardless of him being a nut or not, just have experience. I'm okay if you're a nut as long as you are qualified and competent. So we have that going for us. We have the fact that Melania Trump likes this guy, which is really interesting that he's 29 and, and pretty good looking. <laughs> Maybe that's, that's why Jennifer he's hanging Missouri around. Who said that, by the way. <laughs> I'm with you, Jennifer. <laughs> I mean, you know, Little maybe toy around the, president, the, the president just needs <laughs> to make her happy to keep her him there. Oh but, my God. but I mean, you outside don't have of to this, come home to Donald Trump, <laughs> <every> <laughs> night. Right. exactly, right? Exactly. Shut, keep her quiet. He's done enough. And so, but I mean, past that, in all seriousness, I, I look at it from the Republican perspective of this. The best thing for the Republican Party, the traditional Republican Party, is for Donald Trump to get reelected for the House and the Senate to be in Republican control, because that will all but ensure that the Democrats take over in 2024, that they win the election in 2024. And the Republican Party under Trump will go down, will go into flames. It will fall apart like the Titanic. And then it gives people like the Charlie Bakers and the Jane Swifts and the Carrie Healy's and the Mitt Romney's and, you know, folks like me with my political beliefs, an opportunity to resurrect the Republican Party of traditional values where we have our core conservative, fiscal conservative principles instead of the party of Trump, which is I'm not even sure what we stand for. The only problem is by 2024, the average temperature in Boston will be 110. <laughs> That's, the, other That's right. Than that, we'll yeah, Cape Cod will be, will and, be uh, hanging and on the by his fingernails. Be un- yeah, I didn't want to That's right. That. We're talking politics with Charlie Chipio and Jennifer Nestor. We're going to talk some local stuff when we return. You're listening to 89.7 WGBH Boston Public Radio. Welcome back to Boston Public Radio. I'm Jim Browdy. She's Marjorie. And if you're just tuning in, we're going over the latest headlines from the White House to the State House. Now we're back in Massachusetts with Charlie Chippio and Jennifer Nassour. So uh, back in September, Suffolk University poll had uh, Congressman Joe Kennedy leading Senator Ed Markey by uh, 35 to 26 percent. Now they're neck and neck, uh, 35 percent for Kennedy, Markey for 34 percent, obviously within the margin of error. So what happened? Well, a couple things I think happened. Um, one is that I think people have caught on to the fact that as high profile as this race is, it would be hard to imagine a race that is less important in terms of anything changing, depending on who wins. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, you know, and, and I think that it reminded me of a little bit of watching uh, 
uh, Joe Kennedy's Uncle Ted in 1979 in that famous interview trying to explain why he wanted to run for president. You know, and, ha- and, and, and you know, Joe Kennedy, I think he's a perfectly nice guy and, and, and you know, uh, hardworking and all smart. You know, I, I just don't think that he has really been able to describe a really compelling reason why he's challenging Markey. What do you think, Jennifer? Yeah, I mean, I, I agree with Charlie. I think, you know, I, I'm i not a fan of Ed Markey at all. Um, and, you know, I don't think that yeah, we're, I, we're yeah, in a time where we need to hang our hats on, well, I have experience and that's why you should reelect me. Um, and, but I think on the issues, unless Kennedy is able to really pull something out about why he's different and not just because he's young, not because his name is Kennedy, um, but something else – it's going to be tough for him to to be able to communicate the message. However, he's been doing a good job of getting out there and talking to different groups of people and to be able to get those people to be interested in him. But Markey does – one of the, the issues with being in office forever, you have those long, lasting, really super deep relationships, yeah. and it's hard to break those. You know, a couple of – first of all, it's February. And just like I think on air we said the initial poll is dubious since uh, it was really early on, this tie poll, uh, a virtual tie, is – Still February. Yes, there are a bunch absolutely. of other debates. Oh, yeah, totally. There's absolutely. a lot to uh, – you know, but the one interesting thing I was thinking about – I was talking to Marjorie about this this morning – is uh, when I'm watching Sanders give his uh, victory speech in, uh, in Texas the other night, he mentions uh, Ocasio-Cortez. And in the debate that Marjorie and I did with Kennedy and, uh, and Markey, oh. he used thank you. <laughs> he <laughs> mentioned Ocasio-Cortez. And I'm not suggesting that either of them on their own don't have the ability or credentials to command the young vote. But that is sort of – she holds a huge amount of power with older candidates, I think, and sort of the the stamp of approval – from the leader of the young progressive wing of the Democratic Party. And I think – I don't think it's just a throwaway line. I think she really matters in these races. You don't? I, I mean I think it's ridiculous. She's she's a freshman member of Congress who just happened to get lucky by beating a guy who was never in the district. And suddenly she is the standard bearer for on the progressive side of who these old geezers are <laughs> hanging on to and saying, well, because we have her, that validates I'm not, By the way, I'm not the saying they're person. saying – I'm saying a voter may – for whatever it's worth, I would bet if there was a poll done, Jennifer, and you asked the American people, other than Nancy Pelosi – name a member, the other 434 members of the House, my guess is that she would be named more times uh, than any other person Probably. in the House of Representatives. But let me tell you what's more of a problem for Kennedy. What's more of a problem for Kennedy is that Bill Galvin scheduled the primary the week before Labor Day. And what Joe Kennedy needs as a 39-year-old is he needs all of those parents who have kids that are back in school and back home from the Cape and the islands and doing whatever they're doing. He needs those people on primary day to vote for him, and the biggest problem for him is going to be that those folks are not back That's yet. an excellent point. You know, yeah, can we move to, that. That's right. to another local <laughs> thing? Yes. I, Marjorie and I have been talking about this hands-free stuff for uh, years. Everybody knows it went into effect yesterday. The fines start on April 1st. You know, for those who trivialize it in a lot of ways or make jokes about it, I'm sure we have too from time to time, there are a lot of people who have lost people they love. Uh, because of distracted drivers. And while uh, I heard even on the radio this morning some really 
clueless jokes about uh, you know driving while uh, driving while you're texting, eating a cheeseburger, whatever you're you're doing. There was a study out of Virginia Tech a few years ago that showed that the effect on your driving of texting is totally similar to the effect of being drunk while driving. And the reason I bring this up uh, is, and we're, we have Karen Spilko on tom- tomorrow as the Senate president. It to me is disgraceful that it took the Massachusetts legislature this long. And I know there was a racial profiling issue, which they wanted to get resolved, and I respect that issue. We're the 21st state in this country to say that people have to actually pay attention to the damn road uh, uh, so that it is less likely that they hit and hurt, if not kill somebody. It's just... It's amazing. It's It's up there, though, with with smoking marijuana as you're driving. I mean, living in the city, walking down the street, it's every day there are numerous cars that pass, and you could smell the marijuana coming out of the cars. It's the same exact thing. As someone who, actually, my daughter is getting her license in the next month and a half, and so the scariest thing to me as a parent right now is the fact that my daughter is going to be driving not her. I'm not worried about her. She's a very good driver out there. George, I love you. You're a great driver. But what I'm worried about is I'm worried about the other people. I'm worried about the person when she merges on and she's going 30 miles an hour and doing what she's supposed to do, the person coming up behind her flying and looking at their phone. That's what scares me. I'm really glad the legislature finally put this in effect. I cannot believe it's taken so long. And by the way, for the record, I'm not... I don't want anybody under the influence of anything. The studies do show that the impact of marijuana on driving are not near the impact on of liquor. I'm not suggesting you should drive high in any way, but uh, regardless. No, I mean, not really as bad. But let's get, we're running out of time here. I want to get to another disgrace. I can't believe it's gone on forever. Charlie we can Chippio's leave for this one, Jennifer. <laughs> this is a Charlie Chippio, Marjorie, Charlie, this is all topic. you. <laughs> it, is, it is the disgrace that people f- for years and, and many, because the, the, the changes were only grandfathered in, Go work for the MBTA. They can, they can 23 and out and collect a pension and collect Social Security as well, which teachers cannot do as far as I understand. A lot of people that can't is right. do that. Anyway, that right. they've got this double double dip. They kept it private for all these years. Apparently, they're way in the hole. Imagine uh, that. $2.91 <laughs> billion in liabilities. So except for they people like – They took in – one point four five billion, right. and they spent two point because more, more than people twice. are retired from the T than are working for the T. That's right. But my question, besides people like me, they're obsessed with scams like this, and probably lots of people are not obsessed like I am. This does make a big difference, does it not? In terms Huge. of the MBTA being such a mess and the community route being a mess. Okay, Huge. take it away. And this Charlie. is this is Exhibit A for the things that I, I'm the argument I'm constantly having when I when. People say, well, you know, the T needs more money. The T needs more money. And I say, yes, ultimately the T will need more money. But until we fix things like this, and this is the tip of the iceberg, there is putting more money into it will be like throwing money out that window because you're not going to get anything back. We have to fix these kind of things. In 2007, the T spent $37 million on its pension. Last year, it was up to over 118. That is just going to continue. You know, um, you have to realize that MBTA uh, MBTA retirees pay less into the into the uh, um, into their pension. Then they get, they get much more. Yeah. Plus, they get Social Security. Yeah. I mean, it's unbelievable the scam that this is. Plus the fact that uh, plus the fact that when there is a gap, which there is every year, 
the T is responsible for three quarters of it. And that's why these numbers just keep going up and up and up because you've got a, I was just looking at this this morning, you've got a 48-year-old four person who retired with a $70,000 a year pension that he'll collect for the next 30 years. You've got a 42-year-old yard master, whatever the hell that is, who's going to, who's making $53,000 a year. For Forget the that. We have, we, we used to talk to him about it. We have a, the head of the Boston Chamber of Commerce. Isn't Jim Rooney yeah. a, uh, yeah. and you know, 21 and Yeah. And Jim's, and I, Jim's not, the, Jim's just playing by the rules. It's not oh, I agree Jim. It's, they got to change Well, the except rules. did he not get an extra couple of months from Tom Manino that, uh, am I right uh, about that? I, I, don't, I don't remember. But the thing is, this is never going to change. Well, I think it might. And here's the good news. Here's why. It's got be quick because I think that if you're a, if you're a legislator and you're uh, you're looking at what your pension looks like and you're looking at what these guys get, you're saying, wait a minute, I think that I, I think self interest might actually force something to happen. Marjorie's going to broach us with Karen Spilka, the Senate President, tomorrow, Charlie. So you better be listening, okay? okay. Yeah. And, and when she does, and when she does, just remember where the Carmen fall on that list of the top ten contributors. To, to whom? To in general or to, to Spilka? Massachusetts politicians. Well, that's the problem. They're a very wide union, and they. Bring, right. But that's why I don't think the Democrats will do anything because they're getting so much money from the Carmen. But by the way, also, they changed the pension rules modestly years modestly. ago. Modestly, you're in two thousand nine. If you're hired after two thousand nine, everybody else and can still get it, can retire modest. in their forties. Yes, I mean, very which modest. is really disgraceful. Anyway, by the way, we should. And you know, we both believe in transparency. Marjorie and I both have jobs lined up at the T when yeah. this thing drives up. So <laughs> hey, we should have all saved our money from law school and just gone and worked for the T. <laughs> I would. Well, the I would be is, so we, much better off today. If you went, if you went there at eighteen, you could get. Out at what's what's eighteen and twenty three? Forty one. Forty one. That you could do something on the side, and then you could yeah. have another whole career. Jet. Plus, collect social security. Plus, get another state job, yeah. and get. Can you still get a double dip on the pensions with the T? I think you can. Uh, sure. It's more complicated. You more can complicated. not necessarily a full one, but I just have to say, I'm I, now Jennifer has offended me because she said she'd almost be retired. Which well, at forty one, I would be. I would be. I would be retired point, now. If, 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 if it was how much 50, she is if it was me. fifty, I wouldn't be retired. Yet. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> John Chippio is a principal of Chippio Strategy, senior fellow at the. Pioneer Institute and adjunct professor at Suffolk University. Jennifer Nassau is a former chair of the Massachusetts Republican Party and co-founder of Conservative Women for a Better Future. Charlie and Jennifer, thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. Up next, we're asking you, are, is the Democratic Party going to get burned by trying to stop Sanders? And is the Democratic Party going to lose in the end if they nominate Sanders? That's next on 89.7 WGBH. Boston Public Radio, our number is 877-301-8970. Welcome back to Boston Public Radio. Jim Brady and Marjorie. And after Bernie Sanders' landslide victory in Nevada, here's what he had to say to his supporters in El Paso, Texas. And now I'm... Don't tell... Don't tell anybody. I don't want to get them nervous. We're going to win the Democratic primary of Texas. Well, the word is out in the Democratic Party. Some, at least, are pretty nervous, so much so that Donald Trump even tweeted a warning. The Sanders campaign looks like crazy. Bernie is doing well in the great state of Nevada. Biden and the rest look weak, and no way Minnie Mike can restart his campaign. And for the worst debate performance in the history of presidential debates, don't let them take it away from you. We're opening the lines asking you if the Democratic Party will take it away from Sanders. 
what will happen if the establishment Democrats block Sanders from getting the nomination? Will there be a, a revolt? Will there be relief? And let's get back to uh, the discussion we had with Charlie Chippy and Jennifer Nassour. Neither of them think that Bernie Sanders has a chance of beating Donald Trump. Are they wrong? 877-301-8970. Are you looking at me for an answer? Well, you're in the studio. You're the only well, one here. You know, I, I, what I'm going to say is I have no idea because Ooh. I never thought Donald Trump could win the presidency of the United States. Everybody seems to think, once again, it's the Democratic establishment leading the charge that Bernie Sanders cannot possibly win the presidency of the United States. And I, I, I have little faith in the Democratic establishment because I think that they've gotten lots of things wrong. Like Hillary Clinton is a good example like, of something they got pretty yes, wrong, is like, it not? like Hillary Clinton. And I don't know. I mean, I, I don't think it's impossible that millions of Americans have woken up to the fact that the remember we had voters in New Hampshire saying they were tr trying to decide between Donald Trump and Bernie Sanders last time around right. because they're both talking about the system being rigged. Uh, and disruptors. They're both disruptors. Yes, they're both yeah. disruptors. Now, at the time, Trump was running as someone much closer uh, in that disruption to Bernie Sanders. He was talking about uh, infrastructure programs. He was talking about tax cuts tax cuts, excuse me, for the middle class. And mm -hmm. he was talking about uh, health care that was going to be better and cheaper because there were a lot of problems with Obamacare. He was like a Republican up. populist, essentially. He was a Republican pop populist. And so I don't think it's insane that that people have realized, especially if you're somebody that's working two jobs or three jobs or you can't afford to send your kid to college, you're up to your IT and college debt, or you can't afford to buy a house. And that's half of America, don't forget, that those people have not said, I've had it. Enough is enough. Enough I... is enough. Now, I don't know. I mean, we just heard two guests that thought that this was the death knoll for the Democrats, and maybe they're right. Nailed I don't too. know. In any case, Megan, you're in the road somewhere. You're on Boston Thank Public you. Radio. I'm helping you. Help, I'm trying to help you. A little tongue-tied this morning. <laughs> of course, Megan. I'm tongue-tied every morning. <laughs> Megan, what welcome to the new? show. Thank you for calling. Hi. Thank you. Um, I... I think people are afraid of change, and it's it's never it's it's completely evident. And can I interrupt you only to say the verdict uh, has yeah. been reached in the Harvey Weinstein trial. The second it is announced, obviously, we will bring it to you. But go ahead, Megan. I'm sorry to interrupt. Go ahead. Oh, I hope he was found guilty on at least one. Um, so, um, people are afraid of change. Mm -hmm. I am a teacher and a Lyft driver, not by choice, and I have a couple other jobs. Um, I, I went to the rally in New Hampshire. I listened to AOC and Dr. Cornell West and Senator Turner, and I was never more electrified and motivated to vote for Bernie. I went in not knowing, hey, is it Warren or Bernie for me? I, I like Warren very much, but I... The movement that's going on is palpable, and it's it's the real thing. And I'm I hate to listen to people like Jennifer try to shake AOC down. And I, I, I it's just this ungenerous spirit. Are, are people so afraid of losing their three hundred thousand dollar a year or more salaries that they would deny? <laughs> 
We got it. Megan, you make your case well. You know what, Megan? You are exactly the person I'm talking about, someone who's a teacher, but you're working as a Lyft driver and you have some other jobs. I mean, it is really insane that people have to work two and three jobs, especially if you're a teacher who has an education. I mean, I think that's the the, the movement that uh, he's tapping into. Anyway, Harvey Weinstein is found guilty on on two counts, guilty of criminal sexual act in the first degree, rape in the third degree. We're not really clear. I'm not anyway clear what rape in the third degree means. No, but it appears that you know, he, the thing that I find odd is, remember they said they were hung on Friday mm-hmm. on the predatory sexual assault, assault charges, uh-huh. and Judge Burke or said, go back and deliberate. Well, even if they went back and deliberate, it's a grand total of two hours, and obviously I'm assuming... Uh, uh, well, maybe they reach a verdict, a not guilty verdict. On the, as soon as our, our colleagues uh, come up with that, we will let you know. But he has been found guilty, as Marjorie said, on at least uh, two counts. We'll bring you the rest as soon as... Uh, oh, third-degree rape, sex with someone who's incapable of getting a consent, as intoxicated, etc. I'm not sure what the what the. Can you guys... Were, was that. he acquitted on the other charges, or were they hung on those uh, two? If you can let us know as soon as you know. Stephen Atruck, uh, you're next on Boston Public Radio. Hey, Steve. Hey, guys, how are you? Good. Bernie, Bernie doesn't have a chance. He's going to win the nominee nomination from the Democrats. But when he gets to the, to the Trump, uh, Trump's going to tear him apart. You know, Bernie talks about uh, Denmark and how great Denmark is. And, but he doesn't tell you Denmark has 55% tax and they have $7 gasoline. He doesn't tell you that part. Yeah, I don't know, Steve. Don't I, I, think, I think Bernie Sanders is quite good in debates. Uh, he's very quick on his feet, and I think his his rejoinder to Trump is that Trump is the socialist for billionaires. You know, I mean, who knows if it'll work, but I, I don't see him being crushed by, by Donald Trump. Steve, thank you for the call. By the way, according to the L.A. Times reporter who was in the courtroom, he was acquitted on the two counts that could have sent him to prison for life. So those were the two that the jury was hung on on Friday, and obviously they did reach a verdict, acquittal on predatory sexual uh, assault. 877-301-897. But it does look like he's going to jail. Well, it I, does. I, Those I, were the two. The predatory sexual assault were the ones that carried a life sentence. But he is not a young man. Was he 67 or 69? I can't remember. I don't know. He's in his late but, 60s. Uh, that, that, that actress said that he raped her, so apparently yeah. they did not uh, believe uh, her. Nicholas and Lowell, you're next on Boston Public Radio. Thank you much for calling. Hi. Hey, thanks for having me. Sure. So, uh, I just kind of want to give my context. I'm a 23-year-old, um, you know, person who's jumped around schools because paying for it is a pain in the behind and taking a few minutes off of homework to call you guys <laughs> for a class today before work at four to nine. So all that to say, I'm actually not feeling Bernie the way that I was four years ago. Um, I find myself more interested in, in Buttigieg right now. Um, now, I'm registered as an independent. I'm going to vote for whoever wins the Democratic nomination. I don't have any doubt of that. Um, but I just wanted to, I don't know, put my... Yeah, explain the change. Think, explain the change. What happened? Why? I think, and I think it was something I heard on your station, not your program. Um, I think one part of it just might be the context of the of the race. I think I would take Sanders over Hillary every day of the week. Um, but when I have... Elizabeth Warren and Pete Buttigieg to fall back on. I think that might change my mind a bit. Um, I also think he's more presidential, if I'm perfectly honest. I, I think, I mean, you talk about the health stuff with Sanders. He's just a little kind of, he, 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 he runs the risk of being raggedy, whereas I think Buttigieg knows how to 
present himself on the world stage with but Nicholas, military experience. One last question. When you said you have, you know, Buttigieg and Warren are out there, Warren's politics are much closer to the guy you supported four years ago, Sanders, than Buttigieg's are. So why not her rather than uh, uh, Mayor Buttigieg? I, I, I think I'm still forming my opinion okay. as a thing, and, and I'll I'll be perfectly honest. There's a website that I've used for some election cycles now. Who do I side with? Uh, which I find helpful. Just let me just answer some questions on what I believe, and, and you tell me who else believes it. And and I, I scored high with Buttigieg, so it's just like okay, Fair maybe I'll, I'll take a look into this guy. Good, you're doing your work, Nicholas. Thank you for sharing your uh, personal story with us, Carlotta in Salem. You are next on Boston Public Radio. Hi, Carlotta. Hello, yes, and thank you for taking my call. I'm really interested in how, in your earlier conversation, the name Elizabeth Warren among the two people you had discussing wasn't even mentioned. And I've been following her since uh, the Consumer Protection Bureau, and I think she is the winnable alternative to Bernie, absolutely, if the movement is going in that direction. And I have grandchildren who have unbelievable college loans to pay off in their midlives. And I'm still working. I'm 81 years old. I have a business I love, but I'm still working to survive also in this economy. And Elizabeth Warren is the answer. And she's been erased on the national. They'll go, they, they do the announcements and they'll go skip over the fact that she came in uh, a third or the, the fourth space and they'll go right to somebody who's the mayor of a small... She, She's already performed. She's a senator. Well, Carlotta, She's if I can interrupt you, the reason they, they do that, she should not be ignored. But the mayor of a small town has beaten her in three straight uh, races in Iowa, New Hampshire, and Nevada, including in her neighboring state of uh, New Hampshire. I'm not counting her out at all. I saw a national poll last night where actually Elizabeth Warren was second to Bernie Sanders. But in terms of performance so far, I think if Elizabeth Warren was on the show now, she would candidly say she's been pretty disappointed, uh, even though she raised apparently a ton of money after her terrific debate performance the other night in uh, Nevada. Carlotta, thank you very much for uh, for the call. You know, I just want to say briefly about this. Uh, uh, I don't we don't know enough because obviously we're on the air live as the verdict is just coming down. Uh, I didn't I am so relieved based on the facts so that I, I know that he was that convicted guy, of anything. Exactly. Yeah. And, I, and I'm not one of these people that say, well, the Me Too movement is over or it's a huge setback, but it would have been a huge setback because this case started with a woman taking a putting on a wire from the Boston Police uh, Department, uh, pardon me, the New York City Police Department, where, uh, what's his name, Weinstein basically admitted to having groped her. And Cy Vance, who has cut deals for Weinstein, the Ma- Manhattan DA, cut deals for uh, Jared Kushner and uh, his wife, uh, uh, Trump, a- a- it didn't bring charges. And I worried that the same thing was going to happen here. The evidence, in my opinion, was overwhelming well, in this case. there were five different women. I, I mean, if, 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 if he were acquitted, it, it would just be, I mean, again, we all going to say that all five of these women who didn't know each other, who had nothing to do with each other, had different involvements with him, we're going to say they were all lying, like people have said about the 24 women that have accused President Trump. I mean, it just, 
it makes you nauseous that these guys can get away with this. And so I'm really glad to see that somebody very, very powerful, and this adds to the people that are very, very powerful, who were brought down by this, Bill O'Reilly, Roger Ailes, uh, you know, the, the Wow, uh, all these guys. But can I, can I say one more thing? We've, you know, we've talked a lot to uh, not only survivors themselves, like in the Catholic uh, Church, and their lawyers, the Mitchell Gabinians of the world. What everybody says who has expertise in this area is when there are people who have the courage to come forward like these it women did difference. and they prevail mm-hmm. which is as I don't know if it's difference. as important that is hopefully going to cause other people who have been victimized by the Weinsteins of the world to have the same uh, courage so I, I, I congratulations to the women and to the jury who at least on a couple of charges uh, did the uh, did the uh, right thing okay uh, we are we are out of time, We're out of time. We yeah. are out our of apologies time. we'll okay, be talking a lot up. more uh, when do you want to com- talk about? By the way, do you want to talk about this when we uh, come back? Is that what you're suggesting? Well, why don't we have a discussion during the news? We're going to okay, be doing we'll something decide. when we come back. We're not sure yet. We'll have a discussion right now based on this breaking news. Um, we'll open the lines and ask you something or other. Well, we're either going to talk about old drivers. We're either going to talk about old drivers, big... or we're going to talk about this verdict. Uh, um, it, in any case, you're listening to 89.7 WGBH Boston Public Radio. Uh, brief break. Right back. Ahead on Boston Public Radio at 16, getting your license is a rite of passage and the first step towards a lifetime of road trips, Sunday drives, commutes. But in old age, driving can be more dangerous than pleasurable, and it leaves some wondering whether there's a time when folks should put the car in park for good or at least take another road test. In a couple minutes, we'll open the lines and ask you, when are we simply too old to drive? President Trump may be searching for love in Washington, D.C., but he doesn't have to look hard to find it in India. When he touched down in India, more than 100,000 cheering Indians packed into a stadium to see the president hear him say, America loves India. We'll talk to WGBH News Analyst Charlie Sennett about the president's trip to India and what it means for America's relationship with the world's largest democracy. All that is next on Boston Public Radio, 89.7 WGBH. Marjorie Egan, you're listening to Boston Public Radio, 89.7 WGBH. Hello again, Jim. So, uh, Marjorie, whether or not older drivers should have to take driving tests uh, when they're in their 70s or 80s is going to have to wait because, as we said to you just literally minutes ago, uh, a jury came back after they said they were hung on two of the five charges on Friday, obviously deliberated for a few more hours this morning after Judge Burke sent them back in, said, keep talking. 
and convicted uh, Harvey Weinstein on two of the five charges and acquitted him on the uh, others, the most serious charges uh, he was acquitted of. But uh, he has some serious uh, trouble here. He said he was found, AP says he's found guilty of criminal sex act uh, for assaulting production assistant Mimi, I hope I pronounce it right, Haley, at his apartment in 2006 and third degree rape of a woman in 2013. And by the way, we are learning uh, about this and reading about it as you are. So we'll bring you as much information as we can, we can uh, as fast as we can, but we also wanted to invite you into the conversation since this is a pretty major moment, uh, needless to say, with the conviction of one of the most powerful people in Hollywood. We're in prior cases, even when, as I said, when there was a wire on a woman, which to me showed quite clearly that he admitted to a sexual assault. The Manhattan DA refused to bring charges, but here... Uh, um, they came back. The jury also convicted Weinstein of third-degree rape against, uh, this is what NBC News calls her, former aspiring actress Jessica Mann, as well as that criminal sexual act thing. You know what's most significant here beyond the fact that this guy is one of the most nauseating criminal creatures I have ever read about is, uh, you know, that whole line, not mine, but used in the trade about the perfect victim. The right. prosecutors are always looking for the perfect victim who cannot be impeached. Mm-hmm. Both Mann and Haley, and again, my apologies if I'm mispronouncing Mimi Haley's last name wrong, uh, 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 were not perfect victims. They were women who were honest enough to say that while they were raped and sexually assaulted in all kinds of different ways by Weinstein because of the abuse they suffered, they had some consensual relationship with him as well. But later. the jury later, the jury was grown, which is not atypical from well, what I understand. And, they, and the jury was grown up enough uh, and insightful enough to buy the prosecution argument through these women. But they said that they did it um, to further their careers. Yeah. It was not because they had any kind of romantic feelings about Harvey Weinstein. And, and I, I suppose you can judge that as it may. But the point is, but in days gone me, by, prosecutors wouldn't have called those oh, women. Absolutely not. Absolutely not. And, and, and I think Anita Hill gets to be as close to a perfect victim as you yeah. can possibly have. But Anita Hill, remember, yes. talked about keeping in touch with Clarence mm-hmm. Thomas after the, the sexual harassment. Why? Because she was an African-American woman employed by an African-American man at a time where there were not that many African-American people in that situation. It was going to help help her career as well. So I guess the big question... Well, but me, let's stop there for a second. That's what many critics of Hill used to impeach her yes. credibility. Here, the defense tried but obviously they failed. Well, they kept trying to say that he had consensual sex with all these women. Mm. There was no uh, force going on. But I guess the big question here to me is, so what do you make of this? Does this mean that this is uh, a beginning of a big turning point in the Me Too movement? I mean, we've had – he was the most powerful man in Hollywood. He ha- you know, There was this joke that you hear for years about the casting couch, mm-hmm. you know, back from when – you know, Marilyn Monroe was in the movies, or you know, a, a, a million years ago, and that that was just that was just part of the deal. The beautiful Price of admission, act, exactly. So, what does this say? This says to me that in the uh, that the most powerful man in the industry, which is all about really beautiful women trying to become stars, that a jury has said it's over, it's done. You can't get away with this anymore. This is a furtherance to me in a very dramatic way of the Me Too movement. It's very likely that Harvey Weinstein is going to go to jail. And it's only and as recently as, the, as, as you pointed out, that first case um, when that Italian model told the cops that Weinstein groped her breast during this business meeting and Cyrus Vance refused to 
prosecute that case. Even though there was an a, a, mm-hmm. an audio recording of him basically right. acknowledging. Can I get back to the, the how important this is? Uh, by the way, our number is 877-301-8970. We know you don't know much about this either. It just broke 15 or 20 minutes ago. If you want to give us your uh, initial impressions on the conviction on two counts of Harvey Weinstein, please uh, give, us a, uh, give us a call. I mean, uh, Me Too 2.0 and when I say 2.0, obviously it all started with Tarana Burke in mm-hmm. 2005 or 2006. But the second incarnation of Me Too with the brilliant reporting on Weinstein by Tui and Cantor and at the New York Ronan Times Farrow, and Ronan Farrow. Who we interviewed. And, and may I just divert here for a second? You know, people love to dump on the news media. The only reason this guy came to justice is because 100% the right. New York Times was willing to invest the time it took for those two women reporters to go out and relentlessly pursue this case. And Ronan Farrow, who's a brilliant young reporter, went out and reported this case. And we interviewed Ronan Farrow, and I read well, I had uh, two an audio. on TV, too. But they added a factor you're not. Well, wait a minute. We're not we... for the courage of these women to be willing yes. to talk. Yes, but the persuasion. I mean, the, the, uh, the, the two New York Times reporters talk about going to Gwyneth Paltrow's house with a meeting of all these survivors and trying to get women to talk. But the point is what Weinstein was able to do, he was having Israeli Secret Service agents Mm -hmm. follow these people around. They were in fear of their life. Ronan Farrow talked about going to put all his notes in a safe deposit box because he was so concerned about someone doing away with him because Harvey Weinstein was having people follow him. He never said he got a gun. But he sort of implied that he got a gun. When you listen to uh, the two women from the New York Times, those two reports in the New York Times, they say the same thing about noticing people behind them, turning around, who was that person behind them, that um, they persisted in fear of of some pretty dark things happening to them. And that's why uh, the New York uh, district attorney... Uh, reversed himself, and they ordered a new investigation of Mr. Weinstein. 877-301-8970. Obviously, this is breaking news, a term we use very rarely on this show. Uh, but it is uh, it is real. Also, l- let me say how significant. I mean, it, as I started to say, it, it all started, 2.0 started with the reporting you just described on Weinstein. And I think it reaches a new plateau. And the reason I think that is because you know how we always talk about corporate criminals? And if even one of them wore an orange jumpsuit, rather than having to pay a fine, which means nothing to them, it might cause other corporate criminals in waiting uh, pause before they did something horrible. This is going to cause some of these guys. It's one thing to lose your career, and I'm not saying that's not a great penalty. It's another thing to know that you might spend the rest of your life in uh, jail like uh, Epstein uh, almost did until he allegedly uh, took his life. Same with Weinstein. You can't get any more powerful in any business than Weinstein was. He is likely going to die in prison unless something amazing happens. And I'm hoping the next Harvey Weinstein thinks twice, not just because he or she should be a little more moral than uh, they might be otherwise, but because this is the penalty uh, when great reporters and courageous women decide to join forces and go after somebody who deserved going after. I think this, this is a huge, huge and important development. And you know what else? I mean, this is in the context of a lot of other things happening. You interviewed Gretchen Carl, uh, Carlson, who was the uh, former Miss America, who was the person that brought down Roger Ailes, who mm-hmm. was leading a uh, apparently an entire indist- uh, trial office full of sexual predators over there at Fox News and getting away with it. And uh, she came to Boston to talk about nondisclosure agreements. And you interviewed the uh, 
States. Is it, she's state Diana rep or state Zoglio. senator? She's, she's state a rep, senator. Right? No, she's a senator. She state was senator, excuse me, who's also saying they should get rid of non-disclosure agreements, which is how uh, a lot of wealthy men bought silence. They would say, okay, you have to shut up about this, but we'll give you X amount of, of, of money. Well, we just had this debate the other night uh, where Elizabeth Warren went after Bloomberg for all the non-disclosure agreements that were signed at his company for sexual harassment, and who knows for what else there. So the, the whole the whole Well, there haven't been reports is, of sexual assault, I should say. I'm not minimizing sexual harassment, but that is the maximum. By him, well, I, I'm talking well, about. No, not by him. Yeah. I don't think we know By other employees in the on. country, uh, in the company. I don't know. But we don't know what went on. We don't know how many non-disclosure agreements. That's correct. We don't know what was involved in these non-disclosure agreements. So we just don't know. So you feel like the tide is turning here in a very significant way, and it's just, um, I think it's fantastic. Anyway, number is 877-301-8970, 877-301-8970. What do you think about the uh, verdict again against uh, Harvey Weinstein? He did not get uh, convicted on the worst charges, but he did get uh, convicted on two charges, uh, third-degree rape against a former aspiring actress, Jessica Mann, and criminal sexual assault in the first-degree case against former production assistant Mimi Haley, 877-301-8970. Let's start with Bradley in Manchester. Thank you for calling. Hi, Bradley. Hi, good. Uh, yeah, I just, this is just a travesty. I mean, he's probably going to face, what, six months in jail? I would doubt that. Uh, and for four years, maximum sentence on the third-degree rape and the other charges. Almost nothing. Well, I think the other one is uh, five to twenty-five years. Actually, I think, unless you know something we don't know. No, I just looked it up, and it it looked like a two-year minimum um, on the uh, no minimum. I'm sorry. I mean, a four-year maximum on the minute on the thirty-three rate. The other one, the the, the such a wide unless you have like an active yeah. judge who's going to set a harsher than normal penalty. Our, our information is going to the... actually do six months. So. Uh, 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 so you're uh, you're concerned that the things that could have put him in prison for the rest of his life, the predatory sexual act charges, uh, he was acquitted on, obviously. Yeah, it's just, this is I got to be honest. I, I mean, I'm a Republican and I'm, I I believe in innocent, uh, so proven guilty. And but this is pretty egregious when a man like this can get away with this. Like, by this the way, is, a lot of Democrats is, believe in uh, innocent until <laughs> proven guilty. <laughs> Too, Bradley. You don't have to declare your party uh, in no, that no, regard. Democrat actually believes that, but okay. Well, actually, most of I know. And, and by the way, we're going to double check on the sentencing uh, things. Uh, I think we agree with you on the third degree rape carrying probation to four years. But the Wall Street Journal says Weinstein faces between five and 25 years in prison on the charge of forced oral sex and up to four years for the third degree uh, rape. Now, obviously, he doesn't have to be sentenced to the max. And what is it, 85 percent? You have to minimum you have to serve in terms of a federal prison. And obviously his lawyers are going to argue, Bradley, that uh, he's a first time offender, uh, at least a first time convicted offender. And that he sh- I assume they're going to argue he should get probation and treatment. But I'm uh, hoping the judge is a little tougher. Than and once he's in custody right now, we don't know if he will uh, emerge a uh, free man pending sentencing later. Well, but if he's, he's in, custody in custody now, right now. he's not going to. Uh, uh, oh, you're saying is he going to get bail or something? Uh, yeah, well, it's I possible. Don't, I, I assume there'll be a motion for that. I don't know, that. but yeah. he's in custody right now, which again is sort of uh, heartening for someone who did this kinds of things. And by the way, dozens and dozens of women have accused him yeah. of very similar things, including rapes. Courtney from Rockport, thank you for calling. Hi, Courtney. Hi, thank you, guys. Thank you Thanks for having me. Thanks. Um, yeah, I I'm glad that you're discussing this on air, and I'm glad you're going in depth about it. It's hard to hear the word "perfect victim," um, though I understand. I know, I know the term. Yep. 
Um, but I work as an expressive art therapist, and it's also difficult to be diagnosing young women um, and young men and older women and men and people of non-binary um, with pathologies that are pervasive in those who have a lot more wealth and power in our economy and in our world. So it's like we blame so many individuals for what they can't deal with and what they can't live with, and yet men like Harvey Weinstein get portrayed um, almost as a victim themselves. And it reminds me of the movie Gaslight from the 1930s. Mm-hmm. Oh, gosh. Uh, right? Yeah, wasn't that where the husband was trying to convince the wife that she was crazy? And Absolutely, yeah. yes. And it did take another man coming in to say, wait a minute, no, this isn't what's happening. And as a survivor myself, it's it's like to be believed is is. It's huge to be but, believed. You know, Courtney, if I may, uh, and I know you know this based on how you said it, uh, I understand how offensive the term perfect victim is. But what I was trying to say, maybe inartfully, is we've all heard lots of prosecutors who are well-intentioned saying they decided not to take a rape or some sexual assault because case to trial not, because yeah. it wasn't, quote, the perfect so victim. And they're afraid that a jury could not understand how complicated one's relationship is with one's abuser. And so uh, I'm sure I offended people. But the fact that both Mann and Haley didn't fit that that stereotype and the jury believed them, at least in these two cases, I think is a will hopefully pave the way for other prosecutors to be as bold as these were in this case. Courtney, thank you for uh, calling in. Obviously, one of the things that happens so often in the legal system, and it's so unfair, is that the wealthy defendants who can afford to spend all their Mm -hmm. millions on lawyers get the absolute best legal talent there is. The state has a lot of, uh, you know, very talented prosecutors, but oftentimes... Uh, it's been my experience, you see a rich defendant outgun the prosecutors of the state. And, and this didn't happen here. Yeah, but can they I say prevailed. What, can I, say, I, 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 I should know this, and maybe you do. The jury was not sequestered here. Is that is that correct? I don't know. Can someone check that just to confirm so I don't go on a whole thing? And, I don't think it mattered, frankly. No, but let me tell case. you why I think it may have mattered. Okay. There was a really high profile. Now, theoretically, when you're not sequestered, you agree not to read the news. I mean, I'm not sure that is real. The lawyer for Harvey Weinstein, that interview that she did in which she was asked, had she ever been uh, sexually assaulted? And she said, no, I've never put myself in that position, was so appalling that I'm not – and I assume every juror, even though they're all, I'm sure, honorable people, uh, uh, would say they didn't see him. My guess is they may have heard it and – I would argue if I had heard that and I was a juror, I would like to say I stick totally to the evidence. That kind of thing, I think, has an effect yeah, on people. Yeah, but I guess he was so notorious even before they selected a jury. I, I don't know. But it doesn't matter. Maybe I mean, you're right. you have to be under a rock not to have heard of who he is, I think. But I, I don't know. Jody 877-301-8970. From, I'm sorry. Jody from Waltham, thank you very much for calling. Hi, Jody. Hi. Hi. Um, well, before I make my, my point, I just wanted to say on the perfect victim thing, I just can't wait until it's common knowledge uh, that people's response to trauma is complicated and uh, not obvious. That, so when that becomes common knowledge, we'll be in, in good shape. But my point is, um, as much as I'm celebrating this, I'm not ready to mark it as a turning point for me, too, until somebody like Donald Trump is getting taken seriously for his alleged uh, sexual assaults and such. Yeah. Fine point. He's up to 24 yeah. women. Credibly accused. And apparently they're all lying. It's 
<laughs> well, I don't think, Jody, if I were you, I wouldn't leave Bill Clinton out of that either. I think he can make a case that there's a lot of credibility in those accusations uh, as well. Well, happily, this season, we have not seen Bill Clinton out in the campaign trail. Well, being shunned is not quite the same. No, as... it's not the same as going to jail, uh, but being president of the United States and being the most uh, supposedly up, being teed up for your re-election, you know. Did you go with me to that event with the two Clintons in downtown Boston about six months ago? I did. How many empty seats were there? The place was packed. Packed uh, mm-hmm. to the gills. So I, I would say that Clinton loyalists are still well, Bill Clinton loyalists again, for the most part. I think a, Jody, lot of, thanks. A, a lot of women and organized feminism disgraced itself and turned the movement into hypocrisy by the defense of Bill Clinton. It was absolutely ridiculous. You can't talk about a hostile workplace and then be defending Bill Clinton, who was the most powerful man in the world, and Monica Lewinsky, I believe, was 22 and an intern, intern at the time this whole thing happened. By the but way, anyway, one I of our colleagues th- reminds us as well that he is, uh, again, you facing don't know charges in Los he's Angeles. facing charges yes, he in is. L.A., so he's not off the hook, even if he is sentenced at the lower end, which we hope he is not, of uh, as per the call from the gentleman a minute ago. I, I think he's going to jail. I mean, it, it may not be for as long as people want, but he's going to jail, and he was the most powerful man as a Democratic fundraiser and behind the movie industry and made all these, uh, you know, made all these Oscar-winning movies. I think it's a huge. Well, it is, but, point. but but taking the side of that, uh, and again, my apologies, uh, the gentleman was it Bradley who called a minute uh-huh. ago saying that is uh, uh, Bill Cosby could get out of jail in a year or so. So while it is true that. It is better to see a a serial predator go to jail than not. Uh, I'm not dying to see Harvey Weinstein get out in two or three Neither years. Neither am I, but I've said this a million times. When I was a young reporter, which is not that long ago, someone would get convicted of rape, no, dragging right. somebody off the street, right. pulling him into a, the backyard and raping them, and they get six months. So I, I view this. You know, Sometimes it would be a gunpoint or knife point, or, or sometimes they didn't get even convicted because – what was she wearing, and why was she walking down the street at ten o'clock? So I see this as as, as progress. Katia from Cambridge. Hi. Hey. Hi. Hi. <clears throat> I'm I'm eighty seven years old. I'm a spousal rape survivor and a clergy rape survivor. Oh my goodness! And um, it has been one long haul, and it's about time that people woke up. And it's very these women who come. Oh God, they are just perfect. But nobody believes them. They didn't believe them in my church. That Our church, the Episcopal Church, has now got a rape survivor group, of which I am a member. And they are getting us together, and they are going back, and they are following this through. But very few other people, the Roman Catholic Church hasn't done it. They, they don't care. They have power. They've got money. How the hell do you stop them, short of a gun? Well, you know, Katya, you should stick around because in a little bit we're going to talk to the reverends about uh, I think it's the year anniversary of that great abuse conference Mm -hmm. where the hierarchy of the Catholic Church is bragging about all the progress they've made. And critics are, at least in my judgment, correctly saying, yeah, but they're still not automatically referring these matters to uh, civil authorities as they should be doing. So uh, the fight continues. Katya, thank thanks for the, for the call. Good luck. But, you know, I'm glad Katya brought, brought up uh, clergy abuse because one thing we should have learned from the Catholic Church disaster is that predators don't pick on um, the, the most popular kid in school who comes from the most mm-hmm. stable family there is, whatever that is. I mean, they, they pick on people uh, that, are, that, that are in difficult situations. They know are least likely to be believed, and I think that... Uh, uh, 
you know, I think Harvey Weinstein was clever about how he went at the circumstances mm-hmm. he went after people in and knowing it would make them look compromised. And you know, that's usually how it happens. You know, the, the thing about Weinstein getting away with this for so long is I've uh, quoted only about a thousand times the uh, line from Quentin Tarantino, we knew enough to have done more, is th- the stories that still need to be written more forcefully than they have is all the people who were on the periphery of these things who knew what these predators were doing who stayed silent it's just it's really well i think i think you know not to get all historical here but but the attitude about women and children until very recently is they were property mm-hmm. you know as gloria steinem runs around saying all the time she couldn't get a credit card she couldn't get a mortgage you couldn't do any of these things so the whole idea that women have equal rights and we still don't have the equal right amendment is still something that i think people find difficult to get their heads around charlene from dover hi charlene hi charlene hi um the Weinstein, I hope he gets as much jail time as possible. My concern is that Trump, if he gets reelected, will pardon him. Um, but one thing I wanted to say. By the way, that's not a ridiculous oh, point. That's a ver- I agree. But go ahead. No, by the and way, you know, but Charlene, you know, he doesn't need to wait uh, uh, till the Los Angeles trial is over or he could pardon him today, not only for this, but for future crime. Well, maybe. He doesn't want to, maybe. Doesn't want his election to be tampered, but the day after he's elected, if he is, maybe. God help me, I hope he isn't. Go ahead. Um, he'd do it. But the thing is, I really want an effort made that Bloomberg situation is not brought up in the same conversation as Weinstein's because I think it can taint things terribly. And I'm conflicted because Bloomberg was probably a Neanderthal, you know, real rough around the edges, and maybe he's making changes. I don't know. But to be truthful, I feel like Bloomberg's the only candidate that can walk Trump and can push Putin in the corner um, right now that has the guts to do it. And I think if we keep talking about Bloomberg's situation and Weinstein's situation in the same boat, it really flushes them right down the street. Charlene, can I say, that's why I attempted to do that a minute ago, but let me let me uh, argue on the other side, the way that uh, Bloomberg can satisfy your concerns and not be talked about in the same way, which he shouldn't be, is release all the women who signed NDAs from uh, the NDAs, and then we'd know what happened, and we don't have to s- speculate. And by the way, but you are right. As of the moment, I have not read anything, even from an no, anonymous source, was... suggesting there was sexual assault, there's sec- uh, sexual harassment charges. Uh, On, no... uh, the workplace being uh, inhospitable hostile to workplace, hostile yeah. workplace. But you make a good point. We have time uh, for one more. Or as he put it the other night, very bad jokes on his part. Molly from West Newbury, thank that you That was for a calling. very bad statement on his part, I would argue, too. Mm-hmm. Molly in New West Newbury, hi. Hi, how are you? Good. So, uh, so I'm calling in regards to Cyrus Vance, um, who has allowed all of these men to continue these, these uh, not allegations, but acts of heinous um, on women. And uh, they were also invo- he was also involved with Abacus. And I think he needs to be addressed as well, because he gave a pass to Jeffrey, uh, Wine- Jeffrey uh, Epstein, Epstein yeah. and Weinstein. By the way, he uh, stopped there for a second. He passed with the president's Just children as in well. In case people don't know, exactly. his office sought a reduced sex offender status for Epstein. And I believe the judge in that case, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, Molly, or any of my colleagues, said, I think it was a woman, but I'm not sure. The judge in that case said they had never seen a request from a district attorney like the request that Vance made on Epstein's behalf. But go ahead, Molly. Yeah, I, it just it, the the lines uh, that he that he has crossed in the last I don't know how many years. I heard uh, originally with him with the abacus yep. story, which was just horrible, and then these two. 
um, I think he needs to be addressed as well, and charges should be brought, should be brought against him. By the way, for those um, who don't know what these men to continue. What for those who don't know what Abacus is, that it was the oh, brilliant documentary. Was that Frontline? I believe so. It was, it was an a documentary story about, about a the bank. only bank that he prosecuted, this little teeny tiny bank. It was about 2600th largest bank in America, owned by a Chinese-American family, it was doing wonderful things yeah. for the community. And this is the one bank that, uh, in the middle of the financial crisis, that he chose to prosecute. <laughs> Ultimately, they prevailed. They being crazy. the bank, but they this spent millions of dollars in years down of their lives. Financial crisis, you know, the it's big banks point, that get away with it. In any case, in, in, during the rest of the show, if we learn more about the the uh, the sentence, the 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 verdicts, and the sentencing, we will obviously bring it to you the second. It is brought to our attention. Coming up, we're going to take a little break, talk about television. Does high fidelity live up to its high expectations? Our TV expert Bob Thompson joins us for that and much more that is on the tube. He's on, we're listening to 89.7 WGBH, Boston Public Radio. Welcome back to Boston Public Radio. Jim Browdy and Marjorie. And comedy is back on the menu. This year's White House Correspondents Dinner with Kenan Thompson and Hassan Minaj headlining. If they're planning to serve up jokes at President Trump's expense, they've got a tough act to follow. In an episode of Celebrity Apprentice, <laughs> at the steakhouse, the men's cooking team uh, did not impress the judges from Omaha Steaks. <laughs> And there was a lot of blame to go around, but you, Mr. Trump, recognized that the real problem was a lack of leadership. And so ultimately, you didn't blame Little John or Meatloaf. You fired Gary Busey. And these are the kind of decisions that would keep me up at night. <laughs> Bob Thompson joins us online to talk about this and other TV headlines. Bob's professor and founding director of the Blyer Center for TV and Popular Culture at the Newhouse School of Public Communications at Syracuse. Hey there, Bob. Can you imagine if they would have brought him back this time, not as president, but as the <laughs> featured comedian? That is brilliant. Now, that would have been uh, brilliant. That would have been something to see. Yeah, but you know, I'm kind of mad at President Obama for for doing that performance because that seems to be the reason Donald Trump decided to run. Yeah, but I don't think he, when he was delivering the monologue, he was saying, "Uh oh, this could really provoke a sea change in no, American politics." But that's what happened. So, uh, and, and you're not alone in that hypothesis. So, are they assume? By the way, I love Kenan uh, Thompson. I love so Minaj I. too. But uh, are they assuming that these are safe? Obviously, it's the Michelle Wolf monologue that uh, caused them to dump it. What did they have uh, Chernow last year doing a history lesson? Yeah, about uh, the press uh, and and politics. But is that the talk? Is that essentially these guys are safer? Is that it? Well, Hassan Minaj did it back in 2017, not yeah. that long ago. He yeah. was the year before Michelle Wolf, And uh, I didn't think it was a very good performance, to tell you the truth. I didn't think it was that funny, and I think there were a lot of things there that were kind of rough and not necessarily of the of the funny type. So he's by no means, I think, a uh, – who, who did they put after Janet Jackson uh, uh, lost her top on the Super Bowl? Paul McCartney on a piano. <laughs> I don't think Hassan, Hassan Massage is the equivalent of that. 
Keenan Thompson seems a perfect fit in a lot of uh, different ways. But I have to say I'm a little disappointed that they went back to the comedians again. I thought finally they had had their consciousnesses raised, and I know a history lecture is more boring than seeing what some comedian is going to do and how much trouble they're going to get into. But you know my feelings about this White House Correspondents' Dinner. Uh, and now we not only came back with a comedian, but two. So they're making up for the one they didn't have last year by having two this year. And by the way, there's, there's no word yet from uh, the President of the United States who was boycotted for three years. You know what I didn't know until I was reading a piece about this over the weekend? By the way, it's April 25th for those who are marking their calendar. That since Ronald Reagan, up until Trump, no president, and even Reagan when he was in the hospital, did a call-in or a video or some such thing. No president has missed the White House Correspondents' Dinner until Trump uh, missed it three in a row. Yeah, I guess that is true, and um, there's not a whole lot of things I've uh, liked about this Trump's presidency, but the decision not to go to the White House Correspondents' Dinner is a thing I think presidents should have done a long time ago. I mean, I just don't think this idea of, what do they call it, the something prom or whatever, there the, the prom. people who are being covered and the people covering them getting all dressed up on a red carpet and uh, having a an evening, I, I just think it's, if nothing else, it looks kind of skewed. Well, can I make an alternative suggestion? Because I, I, I'm torn about this. I basically intellectually agree with you, but emotionally I like it. What if instead of having comedians, we had six of the Democrats scream at each other, have another debate on <laughs> April 25th? What do you think about that? Might as well, I guess. By the well, way, do you that, that you, last debate? Yeah, as long uh, as you mention it, it was it was it was fire. It was hot from the moment Elizabeth Warren started going after Bloomberg. Well, at least the first ratings. hour, huge ratings, right? Yeah, nineteen point seven million compared to six right, to eight million, and that's a. That's a big, big rating. The Oscars only got 23.7, and they're usually the second or third uh, or first rated show other than football of the year. So does that mean that people were tuning in to see Michael Bloomberg? Was that what this was all about, or do we have any idea? That seems the most uh, logical, and it, it didn't seem like they were. I could see if the, it's the second half ratings doubled or something, people would have said, oh, are you watching the debates? They're really going after each other. Um, but I, I think it must have been the fact that there's a new cast member yeah. uh, in, the, in the ongoing miniseries, and people wanted to see how that would go and how we would do, and they got an answer to that question on that evening. <laughs> By the way, the first hour, I know for purists who just want a debate on the merits, it was sort of a low-rent thing. But I have to but say, politics, that was about the best hour of political television that one can possibly imagine. But you do wonder imagine. if the politics and, and, and the viewership is significant because does that mean people hungering for something besides what they've got? And so they think Bloomberg could be their savior and they tuned in to see the, the possible savior. and then it Or it's out. just the curiosity factor curiosity. that there's a new yeah. guy in town who's spent a mere $400 million of his own <laughs> money. And I want to see what he looks like when he's not in a commercial. I mean, I, I, I think your original analysis... Makes sense. We're talking to Bob Thompson, our uh, our TV guy. So, what's the worst this week, Bob? Last night, uh, American Idol was doing its auditions, and of course, these are taped. It's it's not live, and uh, there was a gas leak in the the kitchen, whatever's uh, weren't uh, working, and there was a gas leak. 
And they took this and included it as part of the show, started promoting it like last week. Uh, they, they left a, a special sneak preview uh, to the press who wanted to post it and all the rest of it. And in the end, it's you know they made it part of the whole thing, and Katy Perry collapses a little bit, although it looked like a bad stage collapse on a high school performance of Guys and Dolls. But anyway, the, the whole thing was kind of ridiculous. It would be the equivalent of if you guys did a taped show – and in the middle of the tape show, there was a fire alarm. If you decided to include that as part of your whole show, and then to promote it weeks ahead of time, right. uh, that there's going to be a fire alarm on Boston Public Radio Run on, uh, on Wednesday, be sure to tune in. That's a great idea. We haven't done that. that we're going to try that, actually, Bob. Well, That's let's, brilliant. Let's, let's play. We got, John got us a little sound of this, so let's hear this gas leak drama that threatened the production <laughs> of American Idol. Here it is. Do you guys smell gas? Propane. It's pretty intense. We're getting heavy propane. Heavy. I don't know, I have like a slight headache from it. You feel it? Oh, it's bad. It's really bad. I need everyone to get up and Let's follow go. me as quickly as possible. Go. Wow, you can smell it, right? Smell it out here. Holy crap. Hey, this is not a joke. There really is a gas leak. I'm going to make sure you're OK. I'm not feeling good. That is about the most pathetic 30 seconds of television. <laughs> if it was live, you'd say, well, okay. I'm with uh, Boy, that is really yeah, not that exciting. sad. Does anybody watch Idol American Idol be... anymore, Bob? Well, well it's, it, it's in that category of, is that still on? Mm-hmm. Well, by the way, it's on ABC now, so if you're still looking for it on the network where it was a hit, it's not there anymore. The great moment, though, there was, was uh, Lionel Richie, who the other two obviously got the memo that this is going to be a big deal. Lionel Richie apparently didn't read it because Katy Perry's going, it's a really strong smell. And the other one's going, you know, a major leak. And Lionel Richie, almost under his breath, goes, well, maybe a slight leak anyway. <laughs> Okay, so what's By best? By the way, then he, though, goes on to lead the first responders in a chorus line of all night long. I'm not kidding. That really happened last oh, night. Oh, my, my God. God. That would have been worth watching, I'm really actually. sorry I missed that. Yeah. Oh, so what's best uh, uh, this week? Uh, Netflix started on the 21st. Uh, uh, they, all their 10 episodes, they, of course, do everything at the same time, of Gentified, mm-hmm. which is about this uh, neighborhood and a taco restaurant. And, of course, the real estate is it's being gentrified, and it's about the effect of these three cousins and the dad who runs this uh, taco thing. It's really funny, it's clever, and I liked it a lot. My 25-year-old kid is obsessed with it, by the way. She she totally loves it. Here's a clip from it uh, uh, where Chris confronts his boss, who made a racist comment at one of his co-workers. Here it is. I know you speak English, so why don't you understand that? Huh? Chef, just, just let it go, okay? He gets it, right? You get it? Mm-hmm. Come on. You wouldn't want to have to buy your MAGA hat, buddy. Come on. What? I'm not your f***ing buddy. Get back on the line. Now listen I wanted to, to apologize to him, because that was f- racist chef what did you say i got every one of these f-ers jobs and i know for a fact none of them have papers you want me to be racist hmm? how about i call ice right now would that make everyone happy so so this is obviously very topical, very political, and very uh, fraught. It is that that episode was, or that clip, I mean, was a little darker than the overall tone of it. It's it's actually quite a warm and uh, uh, 
suite, I would go so far as to say, uh, program. Uh, and your daughter might have uh, remembered or, or might have seen it was based on a web series that I think did seven episodes or so. So it's, it's had an existence before this. America Ferrara, who was most people, I guess, would know from Ugly Betty, oh, yeah. yes. one of the executive producers behind this, but not the creator of the show. Have you seen the gas leak episode of this or have you not seen that yet, Bob? <laughs> Oh, my God. Okay, so that is the best. Uh, Fresh off the boat, uh, did it just finish its final episode? Yes. Is that what the deal is? Last week did a final uh, two-part episode, and this was an important – I mean, everybody pointed out it was the first sitcom uh, starring an Asian-American family since All-American Girl, which debuted over 25 years ago and only lasted a season – and this was kind of fraught with uh, issues. Uh, the creator of the show had some problems with how it was being uh, promoted. Uh, one of the stars, Constant Wu, who, of course, had moved on to things like Crazy Rich yeah. Asians, had tweeted how disappointed she was when the final season, when it was renewed, which normally that you tweet the opposite. <laughs> so it had some controversy, but generally was a standard sitcom that uh, plugged away for six seasons and I think did some interesting things and went off on a quiet but funny um, funny ending. A a joke that uh, you guys will uh, like uh, up there in Boston. The kid is getting, um, who nobody would expect, uh, uh, the the main, the oldest kid who's now getting ready for college, has managed to get 1,500 on his SATs, which nobody would have expected he'd have gotten close. By the way, when they ask him specifically, he goes, yeah, I got 750 on the verbal and on math, you figure out whatever's left. Then he gets he, uh, people from Harvard uh, reach out and want him to uh, want him to apply, and he says, "Yeah, Harvard's interested, but uh, I don't think I'm built for those Pennsylvania winters." <laughs> <laughs> oh my god! So, Bob, before we leave this, I missed the last five and three quarter seasons. Of fresh off the boat, and when I did watch the first couple of episodes, it was this is obviously six years ago, and obviously it had a pretty significant run being on the air that long. There was the whole debate about whether or not these were racist stereotypes. Did that dissipate over uh, uh, over the years, or did it always stay on the horizon there? Well, the, uh, the the argument dissipated simply because people quit talking about the show a lot. But uh, there there was always in the beginning. There certainly was that. Uh, I think for the most part, though, people were and the creator had a problem with even from the very beginning how it was being promoted. So the idea as to at where is the line between embracing thir- certain characteristics of a family and the community they're in, and where is uh, when does that become uh, you know continuing to promote and uh, uh, strengthen stereotypes? For example, there was a grandmother they lived with, uh, and she they'd speak to her in English, but she'd always uh, speak back to them in Mandarin, and it would be subtitled. And like the grandma in All an American Girl, she was a little over the top. Uh, in this the last episode. She called uh, Dale Earnhardt a great racist. <laughs> That's pretty <laughs> funny, was, actually. Was again, a pretty funny line. So do I. So, Bob, last week, just by chance, I uh, happened upon an hour of the Frontline piece on Jeff and Bezos. I did last night. Oh, you watched oh, it last gosh. night? Yeah. And we have, by the way, we have James Jacoby, who was the guy uh, uh, who was uh, essentially doing most of the reporting here. He'll be with us on May 5th, and you people do not want to miss it. I thought, you know, it isn't that what I saw in the hour, I don't know how you felt, Marjorie, about last night. It isn't that there was so much that was 
new is just one of those things, at least for me, when you put it all together in one two-hour package, you are shaking your head and saying to yourselves, I can't believe I support this enterprise at Amazon. What did you think of the thing as a documentary? I, I think exactly what you just said, I believe, as well. First of all, Frontline has got to be, over the years, far and away, among the top best television programs ever made. I mean, yeah, consistently, they keep plugging away. We just gave a best a couple of weeks ago to that American America divide or the Great Divide great, or whatever it was, yeah. which was just absolutely extraordinary. And uh, now this Amazon thing, uh, and, and you, you've, you said exactly what makes these frontline things work so well, is that they take all of this stuff and argue it in a concise, yeah. intelligent Lots of primary source evidence, uh, and they're done with it. Nothing too fancy, but you really—it's extraordinary pedagogy, if nothing else. And I also agree with you that, you know, as I'm watching it, about to push the buy button on whatever it is I've ordered, it that documentary pointed out the fact that as much as we know this, none of us can stop. You know, also, I mentioned this the other day, the day after I happened upon an hour and before you watched it, obviously, last night, Marjorie. One thing I didn't know, well, I did know, I knew half of this. This is just a small part of it, but it speaks volumes, is I think most people know that the vast majority, if not all, of the deliveries are made by third contractors so that they can hopefully, Amazon can hopefully escape liability if there's an accident or something like that right. happens. That was bad enough, and I knew that. What I did not know which is small but stunning, is they purposely limit the Amazon purposely limits the size of the delivery vans so that they are just under the physical size that would make them subject to federal regulation. I mean, it is brilliant and evil all at the same time. It's incredible. It sure is. That the cops are kind of salesmen, essentially, for Amazon running around talking about how you can get this front door protection, that ring thing or whatever it is. And and the frightening, the, the most frightening part of it all was people who actually have cameras in their house and they're sitting there, and they're and they're watching TV, and all of a sudden, this disembodied voice starts talking to them. That that frightening one about that little girl who's in her bedroom, where this man is talking to her, and I mean, gosh, you know, I I think that you know, uh, ask your smart speaker to turn on whatever has now become not something good, but something frightening. Can I say one last thing about this? Blame those voices in my head on Amazon. One last thing. I want to compliment myself, if I may, for a minute. You know, a (laughs) huge part of this, for those who've not seen it, talks about the environmental impact, especially it was two-day shipping, I think it was 2005, and now it's one-day shipping. Yesterday, I ran out of low-dose aspirin. You know that men of a certain age are supposed (laughs) to take a low-dose aspirin every day. I assume you do too, Bob. So rather than going to the Walgreens, which is a whole half block from where I live, rather than walking, I go on 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 Amazon, Amazon, and it's $7, and it's $7 with free shipping the next day, and I am proud to say I I hit uh, uh, I canceled out of the site. There you go. Because I said, even I, I mean, it, Jim, it is just, it is. You're a great patron. American. Thank you very much. <laughs> In any case, so what are we watching? People should watch this thing. 
They go, should watch it because go to WGBH I mean, News or go to Frontline and you'll see. But it. that's it's great. the thing: we all are addicted. Are you giving up your Amazon Prime membership? Well, I didn't order my Bayer aspirin well, that's this very morning. Impressive, but I Thank think you. a lot of us order much too much from Amazon. It's really it is really hard to stop. So, what to watch? What are we I, watching? I, I sure hope that Frontline is not available on Amazon Prime. Wouldn't that be the <laughs> ultimate irony? Well, our colleagues across the street are the people in charge, and they just—you're right—they do brilliant, brilliant work. It's incredible. What are we watching this week, there, Bob? High Fidelity on Hulu started on Valentine's Day, 10 episodes. This is, of course, based on the uh, movie, which was based on the Nick Hornby uh, uh, book, which, and he's an executive producer of this. Zoe Kravitz, however, takes the place of Cusack as the main uh, uh, character, as the star of this. And it is filled with the original angst-ridden address to the camera, which sometimes you can take a little bit, uh, uh, you get a little bit too much of. But the little bits in between between are worth uh, are worth watching this for. Uh, we have a little sound. By the way, Hornby, Marjorie, was with us for another book last year. Yes, he I can't was. Remember. He was terrific. Embarrassed to say, I can't remember the name of the book. In this scene from High Fidelity, a customer wants to buy Michael Jackson's Off the Wall. Oh, perfect. Which sparks an argument between Robin and Sharice about who is worse, Kanye West or Jackson. Okay, you still listen to a dude who raps in a MAGA hat, so. Oh, you <laughs> f***ing serious. Having sh- Politics and a second grade understanding of American history is a tiny bit different than being a child molester. Allegedly. Jesus. Kanye West has a mental health issue. You don't think Michael Jackson had a f***ing mental health issue? Okay, cool. Great, great, great. So this is what I'm going to do. I'm just going to pop on some Charles Manson and we can all just vibe out to that. Does that sound cool for you? Charles Manson made music. So, you know, I, I don't know how I feel about Zoe Kravitz. I'm curious to hear you say how she was in this. In Big Little Lies, it seems to me that she did the exact same. It's sort of like Claire Danes on Homeland. Same that she character? does the exact No, not same character. She does the exact same scene every week for, you know, whatever number of years. So is she good in this? Well, she is, but of course, that's kind of what she's playing. It is this young, self-indulged, uh, kind of in love with her own problems and bad love life and it, you know, just like the uh, book and the uh, and the movie were but she plays it really 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 well that clip by the way is what this show does so well and that's just the uh, the edge of a even longer scene this woman comes in wants to buy a michael jackson uh, album for her boyfriend and they go on for what seemed to be minutes on whether or not they can even sell him a michael jackson sell her a michael jackson album uh and that's the kind of thing this does so well and then zoe kravitz does her little emotional things in between but the answer is yes i think she is good at it uh, there was also a long thing on a debate between which is the better Fleetwood Mac album, Rumors or Tusk, which <laughs> taught me way more than I ever knew about either one of those uh, uh, albums. And this is on Hulu, right? Yes. Great. It uh, debuted actually a little more than a week ago. I think it was the 14th that uh, it debuted. Ten episodes, uh, um, and I think uh, I, I, it can be a lot of fun. Thanks, Bob. Great to talk to you. Talk to you next week. Thank you, Bob. I look forward to it. Bob Thompson joins us every week. He's the founding director of the Blyer Center for Television and Popular Culture and a trustee professor of television and popular culture at the Newhouse School of Public Communications in Syracuse. Bob Thompson, thank you again. Coming up, power to the people of color. Will South Carolina's primary around the corner have candidates pandering to minority voters? That's next on All Revved Up with Irene Monroe and Emmett Price. This is 89.7 WGBH, Boston Public Radio.
Welcome back to Boston Public Radio. Jim Browdy and Marjorie. And we told you right about the time that the a jury verdict came back, 11.45, 11.50 in the Weinstein case. As soon as we heard from the prosecutor, we would bring it to you. Here's Manhattan DA Cyrus Vance, who, is, as you heard before, Marjorie, and I don't have much good to say about. However, he pretty much got it right here. Here he is talking to the press right after the uh, jury's verdict. With this verdict, uh, I hope that survivors will see that in this justice system, prosecutors, judges, and juries will believe them. Uh, even when the facts are not simple, and even when the dynamics of the relationships between the survivors and the abuser are complicated. So I think, Dean, the message is this is a big day. This is a new day. And I hope women will, uh, I hope women will understand the significance of the jury verdict uh, today. Even when the dynamics of the relationships between the survivors and the abuser are complicated, what we discussed before, Marjorie. Here with us in Studio 3, and we'll continue to bring you updates on that verdict. And by the way, uh, uh, he is, Weinstein is in custody, uh, as Marjorie said earlier, remains in custody. Here with us in Studio 3 to take on the moral dilemmas of the day are Reverends Irene Monroe and Emmett G. Price III. They're the hosts of All Revved Up podcast. To learn more and to subscribe to the All Revved Up podcast, go to allrevveduporg Irene and Emmett, it's great to see you both. Hey, glad to be here. Well, as long as we're talking about horrific sex crimes, why don't we move to the Catholic Church, which has had its lots of problems with horrific sex crimes. We'll start with you, Emmett. Um, <laughs> the, uh, we'll get to Irene. Um, uh, Twelve months after Pope Francis' abuse summit, uh, there was another meeting in Rome, and lots of survivors and the SNAP people, which is the group that has worked so hard for survivors, says that uh, Pope still hasn't done what he should, which yeah. is tell bishops they got to go right to the cops and not to anybody else. Yeah, you have to get rid of the statute limitations. And I think it's it's strange to see that on the inside of the Catholic Church, you know, certain folks are saying it was a milestone, that there's all of a sudden recognition and acceptance of what happened. But outside, uh, and, and I'm sitting with the survivors here, mm-hmm. this, is, this, is, this is foolishness. I mean, a year later, and we have no change, no systemic change, no, you know, policy change, no... Um, internal mechanisms. Yeah, this is horrific. If nothing else, you know, not only is it not, it's horrific, as Emmett says, in terms of there's no systemic change, it's a, it, it continues spiritual abuse here. I, I, one of the things that the church has not really understood is that it cannot police itself. If anything else, it continues to maintain its really dysfunctional system here. I, I think that, again, for kind of s- systemic change, I think that personally the Catholic Church really needs to understand that psychosexually— it's immature and underdeveloped, that they need not to see that pedophilia is a sin, but that it is a crime and that those priests really need to be on a sex offender registry. They need to debunk this ridiculous theology of celibacy here because some of that is the problem here and not and not blame the a lot the large part of the problem on pedophilic priests it also needs to really it needs to open its doors to gender equity it needs to make women you know have high positions in the church and priests you know and it you also needs to saw the pope to, failed on that celibacy thing like yeah, a week absolutely. or so ago I, I when he had opportunity to celibacy because a lot of these guys that are running around doing this are married they're married that's right that's, that's right so i don't buy 
bothers all these things. I think clericalism has a lot more to do with it. Women having no positions in the church has to do with it. They can they can get married five times that's and correct. still be pedophiles. So I don't. It's a power that's game. right. Yeah, that's right. It, and, and, and maintaining it's maintaining male power. So my point is, the church is is, is very very interesting that it continues to sort of repackage the same you know rhetoric as something new. And they're all they're doing is it's sort of like when you don't like Brussels sprouts as a kid and you you move it around the plate and you think that by placing it and spreading it out it looks like you may have eaten it and maybe you've dropped some or given some to the dog yeah. i think that that's what they're doing they're playing us shows how little you know it's my favorite vegetable we're talking about <laughs> maybe the fu- when crisp when crisp when crisp yeah like is soggy myself as, you know by the way just bacon. quickly it is so simple as as emmett said Every state should just – you don't need the Catholic Church right. to eliminate the statute of limitations. Civilian legislators can, can do that tomorrow. They can do it, and they should do it. We've made some progress on the civil and, front. Yeah. It has to happen on the criminal front. And we're front hoping too. that the Boy Scouts will do it too because the whole idea that when you read this particular article, it was saying, well, you know, the Boy Scouts has this problem too, as if to say, see, we all the are – The church wrest- is saying, yeah, right. That, yeah, yeah, we're all wrestling with this. Yeah. Um, so um, why am I not surprised that the, the president, when he trashes Parasite, the one that, the movie that just won the oh, best, God, that best was movie, fabulous. and it's um, from South Korea that he says, you know, enough with South Korea, essentially, let's bring back Gone with the Wind. Why am I not surprised um, that the president... Can we play a little sound, well, by the way, just to I, give people a feel? Yeah. Here's, here's just a clip from Gone with the Wind, which I'm guessing a lot of you have read about and heard oh, about, not but know. not seen, yeah, yeah. where the plantation-owning Gerald <laughs> O'Hara and other white men of town discuss, including Rhett Butler, discuss their odds in winning what would become the Civil War. Here it is. We've borne enough insults from the Madeline Yankees. It's time we made them understand we keep our slaves with or without their approval. Was the sovereign right of the state of Georgia to secede from the Union? That's right. They've got factories, shipyards, coal mines, and a fleet to bottle up our harbors and starve us to death. All we've got is cotton and slaves and arrogance. <laughs> That's right. It's not a business in any renegade talk. I mean, in great part, a celebration or at least romanticization, if that's a word, of the slave-holding South, no? I just want to say to you all, I know nothing about birthing no babies. <laughs> okay. Very nice. Oh, Actually, better acting than uh, we just heard. We all heard. remember that scene. <laughs> okay. And, oh, and the other one, uh, uh, frankly, my dear... I don't give a damn. <laughs> yeah, that was but I mean, it's the very interesting table. thing is, is that to hear him, this is Trump, utter this in a in his usual, uh, you know, uh, cohorts of 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 lost cause, you know, Confederate folks here. Uh, it, it, it's amazing how the tenacity to that to, to that narrative, because he says, well, why not something American like like the Civil War? And the very interesting thing is that when they had the Los Angeles. Uh, Olympics. One of the things that they wanted to do was they made sure that we will not show an international audience that particular right. film because of the subjugation and humiliation, not only of African Americans, but of America as a whole. There are two movies within the canon uh, that black folks absolutely disavow and despise. It's this one mm. and Birth of a Nation. That's right. It's really those two. Well, hasn't right. Birth of a Nation almost been banned? I mean, no, like, oh. like no, no, no. Oh, it's, no, no. It, it has a it has a shelf life, and it has a historical narrative and historiography. I mean, people, you know, mention it the same way that they mention this. And one. And it has cultural wow. currency, particularly if you have a kind of rhetoric of "Make America Great Again." But one of the things that we got to understand, and 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 it's whether Donald Trump is is espousing why don't we have something like 
you know, Gone with the Wind, is that even with present-day films like, say, The Help or, or Green Book, they like to see black folks really in these very kind of sort of what I call racist tropes of Tom, Coons, Mulattoes, Mammies, and Bucks. I mean, that's pretty much the genre. Or Slaves, yeah. because, again, when we look at the Oscars just last month, this month, the last month, I forget. I mean, I love Cynthia Erivo. I'm so Here we sorry. Go again. I'm yeah. so I can't sorry. Help you. But nonetheless, again, and she was her, she was terrific, but she portrayed a slave. Uh, we're talking to uh, Emmett Price and uh, okay. uh, Irene Monroe. This is one of my favorite subjects: the mess at, at Boston Latin oh, in terms of admission of kids of color from the Boston public schools. Uh, one of our former colleagues, she wrote this great. She, she's now she was with us here at, at WGBH. Now she's at the Globe. Bianca Van Tones and Megan Irons and Sarah Carr wrote this piece talking about Boston Latin as a sacred cow of Boston's education landscape and pointed out, and I didn't know it was this bad. Well, first of all, pointed out that many people have tried to change things, including yes. Tommy Chang, yeah. mm-hmm. who was escorted out the door yeah. very quickly at Boston Latin, and they have run up against the political realities yeah. that there are a lot of very powerful uh, voters in Boston who are people of means, who moved to Boston, West Roxbury, Jamaica Plain, send their kids to private school, Park School, Dexter School, and then get them tested into Boston Latin. This story says that last year, one-third of the students invited to attend Boston Latin were from private schools, although only 11% of Boston school-age children attend these schools. Isn't if this that? is not... I mean, I've asked the mayor about this many times. He says they can't change it because of everybody pays taxes, but other cities <gasps> seem to be able yeah. to get around this. Yeah, a lot of cities get around. I mean, Chicago is a model, a number of other cities. The fact that you have uh, black and brown in Boston public schools is 72%. And in the in the exam schools, they represent twenty one percent. That's astounding. Uh, the fact that um, and, and and one of the things that's about it is is both money and votes, right? Money and votes. Boston Latin endowment is fifty nine million. Isn't that amazing? I, I have no idea. That is really <laughs> money and votes. Yeah. That, that, yeah. So that's that's the challenge of how do you change the system? This took Carol Johnson out. Just took Tommy Chang out, That's right. and I'm hopeful that Brenda Caselius will do a good job in trying to navigate the politics of this huge lobby, because yeah. that's what it is. It's a lobby of private school um, who are citizens, you know, private school families who utilize the private school and independent system in order to get into the exam schools mm-hmm. because of their matriculation rate. And well, this isn't it Marty Walsh, really, the mayor that has to do this? Because he's the mayor. He has the power I, to do it. You know, it. I think Caselius, as the story points out, it, it has to proceed cautiously lest she get her head chopped yeah. off. Well, By the way, she's well, with us on Friday at the she's library. She's with us on Friday. Okay. Okay. But, and we will ask Marty Walsh too. about this again because so this is this, bo- this bothers me on a lot of levels because while well, we can look at this school as a problematic, I mean, this is, and they call it the Great Divide. I mean, we're looking at this under the rubric of their reporting it as the Great Divide. I think that we once thought of education as an equalizer in terms of a problem around race, particularly once we had Brown versus Board of Education. Boston Latin is a problem, but it's not a particular problem. It's a systemic problem in this. Is that, you know, one of the things that, because it's a systemic problem because there are so many systemic efforts to thought a good outcome. And I'll give you an example. Cambridge Range in Latin is a good one, but it's it's just not the Cambridge Range in Latin, but you'll have these problems. What was once affirmative action is now reverse discrimination. So that's one way of doing it. We now have a school-to-prison pipeline. So I'm just saying that there's deliberate... Deliberate efforts not to educate black people. You have schools within school. That's segregation, and that's within Cambridge Ridge and Latin. There was a report just this week about how they intentionally don't set up uh, African American 
students for AP classes. Then you have the trafficking within a grade, meaning that black and Latinx kids are put in a lower track within a grade here. Then you have something like explicit and implicit bias, you know, with teachers who who exhibit a kind of bigotry of low expectation. So all I'm saying is that Boston Latin certainly subsumes all of those problems, but so do every school in America, every public school pretty much in America. It's the entire exam school system, and you're right, Irene, about the systemic notions, but the test in, in, in Boston, the test in order to get into the exam schools, and there's more than just one, is 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 separate and apart from the standard core curriculum. Right. So so the kids in the in the in the general public schools don't really even have a shot mm-hmm. at being successful at the test because the, the test does not reflect their standard core curriculum. Yeah. yeah. I mean, but, so you're plus, right. Plus, plus see what the wealthy we kids can buy tutors and right, right, and all this kind of thing. So it's become. And there was a time when there were to use the word that freaks so many people up, quotas. I mean, there was a time when Boston Latin made an effort. There yeah. were many more kids of color in Boston Latin like 25 years ago. So we've gone backwards. Well, the, the, of, the, the oh, last bit, formula yeah. is half of the students are seated by by their grades, That's by right. their GPA, and the other half are seated by their test scores. Yeah, but there's another problem here. So that even if you get in here, we remember that what went viral when these uh, young black kids made viral. One of the problems within Boston Latin School that it Attorney General uh, Healy. No, no, no. Well, Healy, but it was the U.S. General. It was uh, Eric uh, Holder had to step in. And this is when one of the white kids talked about lynching, was going to, wanted to lynch one of the kids here. So, so my, my issue here is that Boston Latin is very much very problematic, but in general, all of these schools are. And one of the things that we notice how how we stop kids is how we place them in middle school, how we set them up not to succeed going into these testing schools or succeed yeah. in these AP classes. Yeah, we used to call it tracking. That's right. That's the yeah. tracking that goes on. And and what happens is is that with you get into a school like Boston Latin, and the kids who went viral with the problem dealt with not only cultural alienation but social social isolation. And then there's another problem. I remember these twins, and I can't remember the school. It was out in Merrimack Valley, these twins oh, the who, hair. who then get, yeah. who were stellar students, yeah. and I think their parents were white. They were adopted or something, and it was about their hair. So the point that we got to really understand is that there's an intentionality to either miseducate black folks or not, and Latino folks, or not to educate us at all by any means necessary. And these are just examples of it. Can I be uh, optimistic in this sea of pessimism for a second? I would think that this public squabble between the test maker and this, the Boston Public School Department is actually a good thing mm-hmm. uh, because it really has made this even more center stage. Yeah. So it's not just the parents of kids of color who are, and their advocates who are talking about the inequity of the test. I have no idea who's telling the truth, who fired who, who screwed who in this back and forth. But it really does make it center stage. And with Caselius being brand new, I, I think it puts a huge burden on her. And and Tommy Chang, let's face it, we've said you know, was just not. <laughs> yeah. I mean, he was not up to the yeah. job. Maybe yeah. Walsh didn't give him enough leeway, but I don't think he ever impressed 
a hell of a lot of people. Caselius is a pretty impressive character, and I think well, this has got to be center stage. Well, I, I would agree. That... I would agree with you, Jim, because I think the additional spotlight. I mean, again, it was 1989 where the federal courts said that you couldn't use race in the decisions yeah. here in the Boston Public Schools. So I think the additional spotlight now creates a moment where you have all these legal groups, you have the NAACP involved, you have you know the Black Alumni Association from some of these test groups involved, and so I think this spotlight creates an opportunity for well, us to get it right. We well, also have like, more like a pox because I think what really troubles me about it is that, listen, let's face it, that up here is considered the hub of academia. And so we can't even get it right in terms of our public schools. And the truth be told, these kids who go through these school systems ha- have less of a chance of getting into any of these top schools than someone out of the country. Well, but or even they if they get, get in, the brilliant in, story on valedictorians. Yeah, valedictorians is it because for for some reason, and as far as I know, no one has been punished for this, and no one's lost their job because of this. In all these non-exam schools, they dumb down the curriculum, yeah. so you could be a genius mm-hmm. at English high school, and you would not learn what you needed to succeed if you went to Boston College or any place else. There was that great story about that kid that wanted to be a doctor was so smart, wound up going in the Air Force, which is, or the, the service, which is certainly admirable, but he wanted to be a physician, and he gets to Boston College, and he's totally lost. Yeah. You know, the, the state is talking about, and how long has it been since we've been trying to fix Madison Park? I remember doing stories about Madison Park 30 the years ago. The vocational high school, the for Herald. those who don't know. And has, have they fixed it yet? Can no. I go back to that valedictorian? What are they doing? <laughs> that know? valedictorian series, when you mentioned the kid who wanted to become a doctor, right. there were a bunch of those kids who in that wanted class who wanted to become doctors. a doctor. And the statistic that will, I will never forget is that more of those kids are homeless that's, that's right. valedictorians today than are in medical school so or sad. doctors. That's right. and, so sad. And homeless, meaning not having a job. I mean, they're out on, on the street. And so this is a pox on the soul of, of Boston that is supposed to be liberal. So you expect this kind of, you know, machination going on down south. But up south here, we're seeing Boston is no different. And you know, the, we only. I'm sorry. Go ahead. I was just going to say, and the other thing is, it's not always about the money because the Boston schools spend get massive amounts of money. The salaries are very good. It, 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 they spend a, a ton of money on stuff. I don't know what they're spending the money on, but it doesn't seem to be on improving the class. And the curriculum. Let's talk about the curriculum on these schools here, too. I mean, it's like when you talk about Cambridge Ridge and Latin, the only time you will hear about Latinx and African-American or Native American, it's an elective. So, again, I mean, we we have such a problem with, and you know, integrating diversity in the in all levels of public education. And then another thing that happens here, a lot of those kids that go to private school, say middle school or whatever, they will have a better chance of going to private school for the first two years and then, um, you know, coming into a public school to get in order to get to college. They'll do much better getting into college because they have that kind of preparation. You know, for people also new, talk about this being a, a generational and then some problem. We had Howard Bryan in here the other day who was, has written this great God, book called great Full book. Dissonance mm-hmm. and the chapter about growing up in Dorchester. He's lucky enough, he and his sister, to be Metco kids. Where do they go? To Newton, I think. Yeah, one went to Newton remember. South, one went to Newton North. And, when, and after that, his parents decided it's time to move to Plymouth. 
essentially in great part, in part because of violence that uh, Mm -hmm. was all around them, but also because of the quality of the public schools. And Howard's not a kid. He's not an old man, but he's, what has he got to be in his 40s or something like that? I learned so much from that book. Full Dissidents. It's great. It's an incredible book, especially as a white person learning about everything I've been doing wrong. (laughs) And that he was, you know, that that you don't think about because, as he put out in in that book, which I thought was a great point, uh, you can ignore race if you're white. You can just mm-hmm. ignore it and not think about it. And you think about the times in your own life when you haven't thought about it and you haven't done right mm-hmm. by a black kid that was in an awkward situation. And uh, he really, he really captured. But you all know that. what? It's see. This is where this is the confounding factor because race is a problem, but so too is class. Because we can go back to one of Boston's most horrific histories, which is the Boston busing issue here. And that's where you pit poor whites against poor blacks, where neither of them had a leg up or a foot out and needed to go, to be quite honest, to maybe Wellesley High or, or, or someplace else other than where they were going. So what happens, get lost in this narrative of getting a quality education are poor whites. I, yeah. Before you go, we only have a minute left, but I, I, I will, I'm going to tell one of Marjorie's least favorite stories. <laughs> oh, my God. If I may. Which one is that? There's a great piece what embarrassment you're going to tell by me Colbert about? King in the Washington Post. For oh, white Democrats who need minority votes, it's pandering season. I want to read mm-hmm. these two paragraphs. And it goes through each of the candidates. I only have time for two. How many times in the past two years has Senator Elizabeth Warren sat down for a meal of collard greens and cornbread, as she did recently with hip-hop artist Benny Starr <laughs> at Bertha's Kitchen, a black-owned restaurant in North Charleston, South Carolina. Why did former South Bend, Indiana Mayor Pete Buttigieg elect to scarf down a plate of fried chicken, collard greens, and macaroni and cheese with somebody you know a little bit, Irene, Al Sharpton, at Sylvia's Soul Food Restaurant in Harlem last April. It's a great piece by King about sort of its pandering time because it's election time, then we'll disappear for three years, then we'll be back. The reason I tell that story is I've said this on the air before. Oh, God, here we go again. So Marjorie and I, (laughs) we're in New York City for the Republican (laughs) convention, I think in 2004. 2004. And one of our colleagues, who we saw at the Boston Public Library a few months ago, I think he's working at the T now. His name was Corey. Uh, well, maybe I shouldn't say. It. Well, I can say his last. Can I say his last name? His first name is Corey. Cor- just Cor- his name is Corey. <laughs> Wonderful young uh, uh, black man who worked with us. And three of us, a producer, Marjorie and I, all three of whom were white. Marjorie hates his story. She's looking at me with <laughs> daggers. And Corey. And we go to Sylvia's. And we have dinner, which is Harlem, which is the most famous soul food restaurant in New York. Oh, I think fabulous. it's fabulous. And it's been yeah, there forever. Yeah, yeah. As we're walking through Harlem to get to the subway after You're dinner. No, no, no. Huh? We didn't. Okay. Know, but okay. That's a whole Marjorie's That's interaction one? with Cornell West is another <laughs> great story, actually. Yeah. And Jim is portraying himself as a soul brother. No, I am not. I am not. <laughs> oh. We're walking oh, oh. through He's Harlem. Had a little swagger. He's We're walking swagger. through Harlem like, to go to the know, subway to go back awkward. to our hotels. And Corey, who's one of the sweetest young men, and now a sweet older man, not old, but older when we saw him a while ago, okay, get, get turns to Marjorie, I think it was at 116th mm-hmm. Street, and says, Marjorie, you're the whitest woman who has ever <laughs> been to Harlem. I mean, that's a pretty good one. Okay, you didn't mean not. that as a criticism. No, yeah, I think okay. it was. Okay, well, you know what? This is what I have to say about this. They all, listen, if they're not going to a black church the Sunday before Election Day, I mean, they will find ways to exploit and disrespect cultural markers. Only thing missing from this narrative was watermelon and a gospel <laughs> choir singing We Shall Overcome. Because let's remember now, when Hillary ran and she was on oh, the Breakfast Club, okay, and Charlotte of the Breakfast Club said, what do you have in your purse? She said, hot sauce. I'm through with all all of them. Well, talking about New York restaurants and particularly Mm -hmm. Harlem, rest in peace and power to B. Smith. Oh, 
Oh, yes. Oh, That's yeah. right. Wait a minute. And yeah. Catherine Thank Johnson. Catherine yeah. Johnson yeah. died Catherine at 101 from Hidden That's Figures, right. this right. legendary and figure. And that was a long struggle. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. Very long struggle. By the way, next time you're back, I'll tell you when she confronted Cornell West oh. okay. at an airport <laughs> like, about how Dr. Yeah, West okay. treated Barack Obama. No, this was one of your finest moments, okay. actually. Reverend yeah, and I've got to tell you this here. Since we have an extra day in terms of February, which is Black... High Black Employment Month. I got one extra day to make some money. Fine, oh, thank you. Congr- is it leak year this year? I did not know that. Good to Reverend see you Zion both. Monroe and Emma Price join us every week for All Rev. Dr. Reverend Iron Monroe is a syndicated religion columnist, the Boston Voice for Detroit's African American Heritage Trail, and a visiting researcher in the Region and Conflict Transformation Program at Boston University School of Theology. Emmett Price III, Emmett G. Price III is a professor and executive director of the Institute for the Study of Black Christian Experience at Gordon-Conwell Theological Seminary. Up next, we're looking at Russia's interference in this year's election with Charlie Sennett. Join us for that on 89.7 WGBH, Boston Public Radio. Welcome back to Boston Public Radio, Jim Browdy and Marjorie. And so President Trump is finally getting his wall, just not the one he was asking for. In preparation for his trip to India, authorities built a 1,300-foot-long brick barrier along Trump's route from the airport to a stadium in order to block his view of a sprawling slum. Let's hope this doesn't give him any ideas. Join us in line for his take on Trump's trip to India, Russian interference in the 2020 race, and other international headlines. It's Charlie Senate. Charlie's a news analyst here at GBH. We also run, heads up the Ground Truth Project. Hey there, Charlie. Hey, Jim. Hi, Marjorie. Hi, Hi Charlie Senate. So National Public Radio did a great uh, piece, a sobering piece, about the number of civilians, 10,000 uh, killed or injured in, in Afghanistan in 2019, which is pretty devastating. And the uh, news report came out uh, uh, as we are in the midst of this seven-day so-called reduction of violence that went into effect early Saturday to begin, uh, we're hoping, for some kind of truce with the Taliban. So how is the reduction of violence going, Charlie? Well, you know, no news on that front is good news, right? I mean, it just seems like the, that it's holding. We're in the first 24 hours after it started. And um, <clears throat> the, the reports that are on Al Jazeera and coming out of Afghanistan are it seems to be holding, which is, you know, just an amazing opportunity for for an end of violence there. I mean, this is, you know, we think of it as, as America's longest war, 20 years since 9-11, 20 years since uh, the war really started there. And for Afghanistan, it's twice as long. It's 40 years. And this is this is a country battered decade after decade by war. There is there are very few people who know anything other than war in that country. There's a whole generations, two of them, that have only known war. So what an opportunity for true end of violence and an opportunity for uh, a new form of government and a new way forward. You know, I always remember General Petraeus saying there is no military victory in Afghanistan. There's only a political solution. And that's where we are right now. Can that happen? And just to be clear, if we go through the seven days of so-called reduction in violence, we're on day three, and it accomplishes whatever the precise goal is, it's at the end of that, I think on the 29th, that we sign this deal with the Taliban. Is that not what the plan is? That's right. And then it will be incumbent upon the Taliban to begin talks with the government. Government, right. So, uh, Charlie... And so then that will be the beginnings of that political solution and... 
you know, that there's real hope there. There's real possibility for this. So in the uh, continuing with your no news is good news, uh, at least according to the National Security Advisor O'Brien, there is no news. He is rejecting reports <laughs> that the intelligence community believes Russia interf- is interfering in the 2020 election with the goal of reelecting uh, uh, Donald Trump. I guess no surprise there or or is it at well, this stage? <laughs> I, I don't know. I guess I'm in the minority who remains just completely shocked. Me too. That we have Me too. Uh, an, intel- <laughs> an intelligence assessment that contours to what Trump wants to believe, not what 17 intelligence agencies tell us. And we we have a new national director of intelligence who has no intelligence experience. Mm-hmm. Um, look, these are fateful times in the world. We need to understand security risks that are out there. We need to particularly understand the security risks to our own democracy in our election with what are, what are just undeniably factually accurate assessments of a real concerted assault to, to hack into our election, to help Trump, and as we're now learning, to help Bernie Sanders. Because they're the two leaders who are the most polar opposite in Russia's goals here for a long time have been to create instability in America and to pull us apart. And it's hard not to feel like they're succeeding. But you know what's important is these guys are getting on as this national security advisor, Robert O'Brien, did with George Stephanopoulos, who gave him a run for his money. He did. And he's basically... He's full of baloney. He's saying, well, what I'm saying is, this is O'Brien, I have not seen the analysis. Uh, No one's briefed me on the Russian intelligence. As if the National Security Advisor cannot find out what the national intelligence is. What they're basically doing is, it's, you know, plausible deniability, right? Uh, Stephanopoulos says, well, you know, have you asked for the intelligence? And O'Brien doesn't say, no, I haven't asked. He dances around that, says, I'd be happy to take a look at it. I just haven't seen it. So they're getting up there, and I saw this again on Chuck Todd's show, where the person gets up there and basically calls everything a Russian hoax again and and just, I mean, they're lying. A democratic hoax, you mean, that the Russia story is a yeah. democratic hoax. Yeah, the yeah, Russian yeah, hoax, right. they call it the yeah, Russian yeah, hoax. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Uh, you know what I mean? No, I it's thought really... it was, one of, one, of, it was George, one of George's finest hours. I mean, the way he just kept persisting with the questioning and kept asking again and again because – we, you know, we, we as journalists have a role to play here, and we talk about this a lot, that it's a really difficult time not to sound partisan, not to sound like if you are coming hard at, at things as outrageous as the President of the United States not accepting the intelligence community's assessments, um, you sound partisan when you do it, but we, we can't let that stop us because right. – we have to know we have a job to do, which is to keep asking the hard questions, keep going on the side of the facts, keep going after this. And I thought Stephanopoulos was balanced but tough. And I, I thought he it was, was a very good. good. And, you know, not to get off topic here, but it reminded me a little bit of the other night. I mentioned this to Jim when Anderson Cooper of CNN has on uh, Bogoyevich that just got out of jail for selling Barack Obama's ascendancy. Yeah. And uh, the first thing Bogoyevich says, well, I was a political prisoner. Like who? Like, well, he didn't mention Nestle Mandela at first. I think it was, uh, uh, you know, he was saying, you know, <laughs> was, you know you comparing yourself to Nelson Mandela. Oh, yeah. He was saying he did no wrong. He was a political cri- prisoner. And good for um, Anderson Cooper got rather heated with him, too. He didn't let it get away. With, he didn't let him get away with that. Uh, too many reporters do let people get away with these absolute. Well, wait a second. When you think of Nelson Mandela, you don't think of Rod Blagojevich I, I in don't. the same breath? I don't. I, now I do. <laughs> I've, been, I've been straightened out by Blagojevich. 
Blagojevich, but it is I incredible. The chutzpah of these people. So, Charlie, you know, I, I, there's, there's, go ahead. Just to, just to put a note on that about uh, in a global context, you know, we, we in the United States pride ourselves on, on great journalism uh, in lots of places, New York Times, NPR, PBS, WGBH, there, Boston Globe. There are places where good journalism is done day in and day out. But I'll tell you, I think we're too polite. We're too careful. We're too cautious. And we're, we find ourselves in a bind right now where to be tough is seen as partisan. And if you ever listen to the BBC, if you listen to, like, for example, Radio 4 and the BBC has a show, a breakfast show, where they come at the, the leading politicians so hard with such precision, and yet they, those politicians come on that show day in and day out. Why? Because they have to. Because if they don't, they're taken to task for not appearing. I just feel like we, uh, as you know, as the community of American journalists, we got to be tougher. We got to be more clear, and we 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 got to just not pull punches. So good on George for I'll, doing that. I'll have to check so it out. Let me return to India, which uh, I started with uh, when I introduced you. What I did not know, I don't know if you did, Marjorie, this morning until this morning when I was reading about this, the largest portfolio of real estate holdings. I did not know Donald Trump real estate oh, uh, tycoon India. is in outside of the United States is in India, which is not. What is the uh, – and by the way, while I made a light of the building of this wall, I worked in the South Bronx when the Pope came, and they basically threw every poor person out of the South Bronx in anticipation of his arriving. The difference is the Pope actually mentioned poor people when he went to Yankee Stadium in the Bronx. <laughs> I don't think uh, Donald Trump will be doing that. What's the – other than having the biggest crowd ever or whatever at the cricket stadium – what is the purpose of this uh, visit to the – it's the world's largest democracy, correct? Yeah. This is, you know, this is a very symbolic journey for, for Trump, and he's meeting with a kindred soul. You know, Modi and Trump are both uh, real populist nationalist leaders. Remember that series we did, Democracy Undone, mm-hmm. where we looked at the rise of populist nationalism? We looked at Modi. We looked at Gujarat. We looked at the rise of Hindu nationalism and really deep communal violence. We, you know, for listeners who don't remember that Gujarat was the scene of thousands of people killed in communal violence uh, in the early 2000s. It was 2002, I think, when there was this fierce violence that the the Hindu nationalists attacked uh, the, the Muslim minority community there. And you know, we don't remember all this, but but these places like Gujarat are, are really powerfully resonant for Hindu nationalists. They see Trump as an American nationalist, as a white nationalist. They see Trump as someone who shares their view of, of, uh, of an idea that Muslims are an enemy, that they're an enemy from within. And these undercurrents, these thematic undercurrents between Modi and Trump are deep and resonant. And those big crowds get it. And they're expressing it. And when they're wearing their white uh, uh, Namaste Trump hats, um, it almost seems like a Saturday Night Live skit, right? Like, I can't believe that's really happening, but it is. And this trip is important because this is a consolidation of a relationship between Modi and Trump that has real important, not just symbolism, but I would say impact in terms of the rise globally of nationalism and two leaders who really express that. But very quickly, all I have a minute left. Is, is Modi taking uh, the environment more seriously than uh, Donald Trump is? Um, 
Mm. Marginally. I mean, India has stepped up in more concrete ways to fulfill its obligations under the Paris, uh-huh. you know, climate change accords. The U.S., of course, backed out of them and has Trump has been against that accord. Um, look, we we are the largest polluter in the world. We're the largest contributor to greenhouse gases. It's the third world places like India that also contribute, but that also suffer greatly. You know, those pla- those are places where climate change will cost many, many lives. Um, and it, the, the impacts are coming sooner and faster and, and more violently in some ways. So I think, yeah, I think India's tried to do what it can. I think it has a long way to go. But I think we have the longest way to go. The United States is going to have to have new leadership that's going to have to deal with climate change. I mean, I think it is becoming such a big issue that even Trump recognizes this now. And he's trying to sort of recast himself this flight in this dizzying time in which he can do one thing and say another uh he's trying to now sort of recognize the need for more environmental protection well you know speaking of the very in our 30 seconds left doing one thing and actually doing it even though you are amongst many with a lot of foreign policy credentials that have criticized the the chaotic which is being kind foreign policy vision of this president Mm -hmm. if he ends up Getting us out of Afghanistan, whether it's with several thousand counterterrorism forces or with uh, no forces, uh, that is a, a major accomplishment, is, is it not? Huge accomplishment and really important. You know, I was... 30 seconds. Remember when... Dan, sure. Uh, we should let Trump get the victory if it's for peace. Remember this with Nixon in Vietnam? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Nixon wanted peace in Vietnam, and the Democrats felt like, how does he get to, to achieve this? Well, whoever gets peace to get it, and it should be something seen as something they did that was good for the world. Charlie, Charlie good to talk to you. Thank you very much. Charlie Senate joins us every week. He's a news analyst here at WGBH, where he also heads up the Ground Truth Project. Up next, we're going to speak with Richard Blanco, who gives us a primer on, primer on something called the Persona poem, and they are amazing. This is 89.7 WGBH, Boston Public Radio. Welcome back to Boston Public Radio. Jim Browdy, Marjorie, and join us online to lead another edition of Village Voice, where we discuss poetry and how it can help us to better understand our lives and times. This is Richard Blanco. Richard is the fifth presidential inaugural poet in U.S. history. Uh, his new book is called How to Love a Country. It deals with various socio-political issues that shadow America. Richard, great to talk to you. Great to be here. Well, thank you very much, Richard, for joining us, as always. Okay, what is our theme today? What are we doing? Well, our theme today is persona poems, which is, uh, as you might imply, is a poem uh, that's written in the voice other than the poet themselves. So it's kind of like another word for it is dramatic monologue. Um, But basically it's uh, donning the voice sometimes of an animal, sometimes of another human being, sometimes of a coffee cup, whatever the the case may be. And it's really... Coffee cup? (laughs) Well, yeah, you could do inanimate (laughs) objects. It's kind of personification comes from persona also. So it's like kind of related in that sense. But the idea is that it's a it's a neat way that poems can sort of twist the point of view to sort of get at something else that you wouldn't ordinarily be able to get to if you were just speaking as the poet narrator or the poet speaker. Um, so yeah, we'll, we'll look at a couple of examples and see how that works in poetry. Before you get to, before you get to an example, when you say it allows you to get to some issues that you maybe couldn't get at in a third person kind of way. So have you had an experience like that where you decided you're going to write about a subject matter and you decided 
uh, you were deciding between the two vehicles for proceeding and decided the persona route was the one to go oh gosh certainly um uh there's give us an yeah tell us a little bit yeah there's i mean there's a poem remember queer theory according to my grandmother which i I think (laughs) so that's in the voice of my grandmother sort of chastising me for behaving too much like uh too much like a girl well i wrote that originally in first person and i I, I, there's something wrong with it i couldn't quite figure out what it was and it's i found as i've like i felt like i was whining you know because of the things my grandmother said were in some ways funny and benign, not to a five-year-old or a seven-year-old, but certainly as an adult, it sounded like, oh, poor baby, you know? <laughs> like, so when I turned it into my grandmother's voice, I just let her speak and let her incriminate herself, and the poem opened up because it also Incriminate. it also showed her natural humor as well as her natural sort of um, kind of, um, you know, sort of vigilance over me and her kind of ridiculousness and absurdity as well. So it changed the poem completely. Perfect example. So uh, we're starting with something by you, I'm told? Yeah. Um, this is uh, originally from, uh, this is in the new book, but it's also it was originally appeared in Boundaries. And so this is also, I always resort to, or I always have persona poems in the back of my mind as, as a as a viable option to try and solve things. This is one example. This is based on a poem, uh, I'm sorry, based on a, on a photograph of Angel Island, which is the Angel Island Immigration Station, which is sort of the Ellis Island of the West Coast. The West. And, um, you know, uh, you know how to, how to speak to this I was really problematic for me because even though um, I have a sense of, you know, immigration, my own family and all this stuff, I really, I, how do I honor these stories? And, and so what I did is I just did a lot of hours and hours of research and I said, you know what, the best way to really get this message across is to try and don the voice of this uh, a conglomeration of the voices that I heard telling their stories about being detained at Angel Island. And this is what happened. So this is, I thought, um, you know, this is the best way that I could speak to that in the art form. Um, Great. So this is letter from Lee, Lee Schwing, Angel Island Immigration Station, 1938. And I should say that uh, people, uh, people were detained there, and women in particular had to prove that they had a son or, a bro- oh, I'm sorry, a father or a brother living on the mainland in order to be released. So this is a letter to her father. When I saw you last, rain blessed the ground orchids. All of Chung Lao crowded your good face with goodbyes. You took the long road to Hoi Ping, to the sea, to America. I was young as the Kapok blooms, but did not cry for you, gone. Remember, I cried joy for the dream you sought for you and for me to know someday, too. Twice in age and height now, hair braided no more, I cross the seas you crossed. I am here, so near you, Father, on this island called Angel, but with no wings to fly me across the bay between us, with no bridge to your city, like the glowing bridge I sometimes see when the fog clears, and I imagine you, clinging to streetcars, tending the soiled clothes of strangers, thinking of Mama dying without you but the fog returns everything disappears even hope how to say this father every day they take me into a room of cold chairs and blue eyes they demand i remember the streets of my childhood the names of our village neighbors their children the colors of their houses sometimes i forget sometimes i lie 
Sometimes I answer right, but they do not believe I am your daughter. Even when I speak your full honorable name or swear I know the heart shape of your face is like mine, they do not let me go. Months of bitter nights in barracks, I make myself sleep by counting stars I no longer see. Turning my harsh sighs into lullabies you once sang like chimes. I try not to think of the pigeons trapped and eaten by the men, or the old woman whose name I knew when she hanged herself from her bedsheets in the hall. I shy from the poems on the walls carved by some who curse this place, this land, and its people. I may understand why, but those words never are mine. Nothing can stop our sun, our moon, our tides and seasons, nor what I have dreamed in you and you in me. Our life true against hardship, more now as I wish to be where you are, as you are. But soon I will have my wings, the fog will forever clear, your gracious gaze will bless me, your hand to hold mine, brush my face like a feather. I will hear your voice call me to my destiny by the beautiful name you gave me, meaning joy, meaning harmony. You know, uh, if, when you said it, uh, in Angel Island, obviously, is known as the Ellis Island of the West, yeah. but as your poem makes clear, it was far less hospitable to Asian immigrants than uh, Ellis Island was to immigrants there, no? Oh, definitely. I mean, there's, uh, as, as the poem sort of uh, unravels a little bit, um, there's a lot more history, obviously, than, the, than that. But, yeah, it was really it was because of the Chinese Exclusion Act. So historically what happened was after the gold rush was over, um, you know, the, the uh, Chinese-Americans started moving into the cities. People started complaining about they're taking our jobs. Sound familiar? Um, they're taking over the cities, all this stuff. And so there's a, a, the Chinese Exclusion Act really limited the, the immigration. So once, uh, so there was a lot, there was not, it was not the, the Ellis Island story at all. Um, and so, but I also think, you know, uh, what I try to get in that poem was also this balance of, despite that treatment, there's still sort of this sense of this hope in America and this kind of new life and this kind of eternal, um, eternal sense of optimism of, 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 of a new life. So, um, um, you know, there's stuff that I couldn't get into by just speaking about it in third person. It would, it would seem it would seem really disingenuous. And, but it's more the poem allowed me to get into what the psychology might have been of that kind of treatment, that kind of um, that kind of other immigrant narrative that we don't often hear yep. very much. Right. At least from you that from that era. <laughs> you know, something, Richard, I wonder in the poetry world, how do people. And, and, and persona poetry, how do people deal with the cultural appropriation yeah. rap that you hear so often aimed at people who write a novel or, or act a in a movie? Yeah, yeah. and uh, I mean, yeah. let's, not, let's not go into American dirt here, but <laughs> uh, no, you know, right. that was a very big choice that I had to make in that poem, and that's why I wrote a note in the back of the book explaining uh, what my reasoning was behind it. But also, I think it has to deal with intent. I mean, if, uh, yeah. um, you know, also, uh, I mean, yeah, I, I was myself a little bit scared that people would accuse me of appropriation, but I thought, you know, this is, at the end of the day, it's art. It's my act of imagination to honor something. I'm doing it out of trying to honor something that I'm not trying to make up a story or, you know, like kind of appropriate it for my own benefit. But also, like I said, I just felt it was the best way to actually 
get the reader to understand this story, right? Um, story which is, like, as we were saying, you know, Ellis Island is a very, you know, mythic, and everybody knows these Ellis Island stories, but so, um, yeah, I mean, I had, I went through that kind of turmoil. Um, I think it has to do, number one, with, with intent. Uh, number two, um, just, um, you know, I, my sense is that, you know, we can't censor anybody. I mean, I think let let the work be judged as it is, but um, I don't think we can start telling people what they can or cannot write about necessarily, whether we're on the right or the wrong, because then who's to say what is the right or wrong down the long down the long haul, right? But who's to say whether the intent is noble or right. not also? That's... You know that criterion is right. fraught too. No? But, but I guess the bottom line is is, is 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 the is the criticism less vitriolic in the poetry world than it is in uh, other areas, or is it just I, the same? I I, I I would say so because um, I I think. This is one of like the persona poem is is a long standing tradition in poetry, right? I mean, this yeah. goes back to like the Greek play, you know, Greek dramatic monologue. So the idea of, of donning a character for the sake of, of again, of telling a, a story that broadens our perspective, uh, that opens up a new kind of conversation, I think, in, in general, though there was a case in the New Republic uh, about a year and a half or two ago. Um, where someone wrote a poem, The Voice of a Homeless uh, Woman, I believe, a homeless African-American woman, and that was met with complete, like, like, like it was just shot down. But also when you look at the poem, when I looked at the poem, the poem was just terrible in and of itself. It failed to create, oh, okay. it failed to create <laughs> okay. empathy for the speaker. So it was just, re- that okay. was really appropriation. You know, it was just kind of like, it was just, let me just use this voice to do something clever, but it wasn't, it failed to create empathy with the, the character, so to speak. So uh, there, there, what I would say is the craft failed. And when the craft fails and the intent obviously wasn't thought through very well either. Right. Um, um, I mean, okay. I'm not, I don't want to spit spit upwards, as they say. But, I mean, I spent dozens and dozens of hours trying to research and trying to, you know, understand emotionally uh, and trying to sort of, in a way that poem is also deals with in the way I, I imagine my mother might have felt, you know, as an immigrant separated from her family. So so I try to find a real authentic sort of base for, for something like that. But that's a great question, and it's a great uh, debate now, um, obviously, in the literature world. What's but- next? Okay, this is a totally different poem, <laughs> and I think uh, we'll just read it because it's gonna it's it's a persona poem, but it's also personification uh, in the voice of a tarantula. <laughs> so, okay. Written by whom? <laughs> this is by Reed Whitmore, <laughs> who was actually a Port Laureate in '64 and '84. Um, so, what I want to say just briefly about this: ultimately, persona poems, even or personification, we're really talking about the human condition at the end of the day. But when we on the voice of a tarantula, it gets us to look at the, the human condition from a different perspective with different kind of language. And this is, this is fun and interesting. It also has its own gravitas as well. Here we go. The tarantula. Everyone thinks I'm poisonous. I am not. Look up and read the authorities on me, especially one Alexander Petrunkevich of Yale, now retired, who has said of me, and I quote, my bite is dangerous only to insects and small mammals such as mice. I would have you notice that only. This is important, as you, as you who are neither insect nor mouse can appreciate. I have to live as you do. And how would you like it if someone construed your relations with the chicken, say, as proof of your propensities? Furthermore, 
Petrunkovich has observed, and I vouch for it, that I am myopic, lonely, and retiring. When I am born, I dig a burrow for me, and me alone, and live it in it all my life, except when I come up for food and love. In my case, the latter is not really satisfactory. I wander about after dark in search of females, and occasionally stray into houses, after which I die. How does, how does that sound? Furthermore, I have to cope with the digger wasp of the genus Pepsis, and despite my renown as a killer, nonsense, of course, I can't. Petrunkovich says so. Read him. He's good on the subject. He's helped me. Which brings me to my point here. You carry the image about me that that is at once libelous and discouraging, all because you, who should know better, find me ugly. So I am ugly. Does that mean that you should persecute me as you do? Read William Blake. Read William Wordsworth. Read Williams in general, I'd say. There was a book by William Tarantula once. I spoke of a work of some consequence in my world on the subject of beauty. Beauty that's skin deep only. Beauty that some Charles note the Charles of the Ritz can apply and take off at will. Beauty that... But I digress. What I am getting at is that you who are blessed, as I have read, with understanding should understand me, little me. My name is William, too. I love this. I love this. Oh, so, really do. Do I. so do I. I have a whole new understanding of yeah. the tarantula. I was petrified of them. There were so many of them in California. You'd see them on the road, and people would go, I mean, I'm jogging or something. You'd run like a mile in the other direction, yeah. right? So, Little did I know. So, you know, this is sort of like, this, you know, ultimately it's about, like I said, the human, about being misunderstood, about they being yes. judged, about beauty, beauty, skin deep. So, all those cliches that we sort of always run around, here's some, here it brings it to life in a different way and animates it in a different way um but yeah it's it's just you know how we are we 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 judge and are judged and just based on our looks and based on on uh not, and also just on on reputation or whatever people want to feel or think about us when in reality and i've researched this too it was in, in, insane like they're not poisonous <laughs> we all think and they actually this digger wasp thing i had to watch a video it was so cool like the, this little wasp that kills them and i don't know it's just i feel so sorry for the tarantula after reading this. Me too. I feel so sorry for the tarantula, you too. He digs a burrow, lives there his whole life, comes out for food, comes out for sex, and then as soon as that sex is dead. This does not seem like a very satisfying life. But if you got to go, you know that old line? (laughs) (laughs) Okay. I love that one. That was great. We want to give time to get to this last one. Yeah, what's next? Because I'm fascinated by it. Yeah, um, so this is uh, is a poem by Cornelius Eady from Brutal Imagination, and um, there was I, I don't know if we remember, but the story of Susan Smith, who, uh, uh, yeah, and, and claimed that an African American man had hide, hide, carjacked the car, and so there's also a case in Boston in 1989 with Charles Stewart, who did the same thing and had killed his pregnant wife, and so uh, what this does, what what Cornelius Edie does, which is brilliant, is he takes on a voice of someone who doesn't even exist and gives them gives this imaginary African American sort of this this voice to stand in for like that. You know that 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 
that imaginary character that that we're always uh, that these two people have invented, but also that is the stereotype and the the racism and the prejudice that is existed about this mythic sort of voice, this person. So it's called. Char- Before you go ahead and read it, sure. by the way, didn't you go to the Susan Smith trial, Marjorie? I did. I covered it from beginning to end. Oh wow, it was just terrific. South yeah. Carolina. Her boyfriend right? did South not. Carolina? Her South Carolina. Her boyfriend did not want any children. Uh, and so and she decided she... to kill her children, oh, strap them into their car seats, and drove into a lake and and let them drown. And I just, I mean, just one of the worst things you could ever imagine. Yeah, yeah, I remember it too. Like, wow, that's good, amazing that you covered that. Um, so you know, yeah, I was reading, catching and up on that a little covered bit. Charles Stewart, and Charles too, Stewart, obviously. A lot of the murders. That's kind of my cup of tea, you know. <laughs> <laughs> what well, I mean, what's interesting here that also like this getting into the psychology through this voice of the psychology of of the murderers of the convicted, right? That that there's something else going on, and it, it, I think the poem brings that out a little bit too. But anyway, uh, here it is uh, Charles Stewart in the hospital. Um, and this is, again, relating both. Um, let me just read the, well, just read the poem. <laughs> so this is in the voice of this imaginary uh, African or American man. Susan Smith now knows what Charles Stewart knew in Boston. We do quick but sloppy work. All these details. How tall was I? The police asked Charles and asked Susan but I vary. I seem smaller and taller after dusk. What was the tone of my voice? Did I growl like a hound as I waved the pistol in their face? Was I as desperate as a teenage boy, horny for a sweetheart's kiss? Here's what I told Susan. I won't harm your kids. But if the moment was mine, why would I say that? I sit with her at the station the way I sat with Charles at the hospital, a shadow on the water glass, changing hues, the slant of my nose and eyes, depending on the light and the question. Charles rocks in bed with the bullet we gave ourselves. How far away was I? We never stopped to think. We were in a hurry. In Boston and South Carolina, I was hungry for a car and didn't much care how I got it. Deadly impatient, Charles tells the cops. But if I couldn't be seen, but why would I do it that way? Why do wives and children seem to attract me? I sat with Charles the way I sit with Susan, like anyone and no one, changing clothes putting on and taking off ski caps, curling and relaxing my hair, trying hard to become sense. Yeah, I know this is an obvious thing to say, but you are so right about these persona yeah, poems. It really were, changes yeah, everything. They do. It really does. I mean, I'd never ever so inside. thought of it. It's that every man in terms of the every black man thinking yeah. about how interchangeable they can yeah yeah and and like even like the sketches i remember reading they couldn't you know this is like this generic kind of stereotype that um that and and then also like how the mind starts the the psychology of those of these murderers also too like how they start justifying this and start even believing and creating it and so so this is the idea that this isn't really really is even a real person and and what 
Edie does is he makes him a real person in a weird way too, right? So it's all he, the voice is also sort of their sub, their 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 conscious or their subconscious rather their guilt. They're you know playing with this idea. It's just brilliant, and, and you couldn't get it. You couldn't get at that any other way except choosing to do this persona. It's one of, the whole bo- book, by the way, is brilliant. It's called um, Brutal Imagination again, and it's all the poem. Well, a big section of the book is all different versions of the Susan Smith case in the voice of, of oh, this imaginary. Really? Yeah, the whole book is oh my a big part of it. Amazing. Yeah, it's pretty amazing. I'll have to look at that because that was one of those cases that just haunted you. Um, anyway, Richard, thanks. This As is always, great. This is great. My pleasure. Thank you so much, Richard. Thank you, everyone. Richard Blanco joins us regularly for Village Voice where we discuss poetry and how it can help us to better understand our own lives and times. Richard is the fifth presidential inaugural poet in U.S. history. His new book, How to Love a Country, deals with various socio-political issues that shadow America. Richard Blanco, thanks again. Thank you for listening to another edition of Boston Public Radio. You can keep up with us 24-7 by way of our podcast on iTunes and at the App Store. Tomorrow we'll be live at the WGBH studio at the Boston Public Library. Senate President Karen Spilka will join us, as well as NBC sports reporter Trenny Kuznarek and CNN's uh, John King will talk to us from D.C. I want to thank our crew, Chelsea Mers, Arjun Singh, Zoe Matthews, Hannah Ubley, Aidan Conley, our engineer, John the Claw. Parker, what is on the Super Duper Junior Friday show tonight? That's pathetic. Uh, so, uh, a couple of things. One, we're going to have surrogates, high-level surrogates for a bunch of the Democratic campaigns for president. We're talking about what happens now, South Carolina Saturday, Super Tuesday, just three days after that. Second, we're going to talk, obviously, about the Weinstein verdict and what it means, not just for Harvey Weinstein, what it means for the Me Too movement, what an acquittal might have meant, I mean, across-the-board acquittal. And Adam Riley is starting a great series, Four Nights This Week, focusing on a different issue every night and telling viewers the position of all the major Democratic oh, candidates right. on each one of them, which I think is a really valuable contribution. You know what, Jim? What's that? That does sound super-duper. It, so- it sounds at least super, and we'll find out if it's duper by <laughs> 7.30. I'm Marjorie Egan. Oh, my God, help us. We'll see you tomorrow at the library. <laughs> Thank Thanks you. Thanks so much. Bye.